0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rides podcast. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. On the other end of the line, as he always is on Sunday, Weldon Rodenberg, we'll talk a little bit of Ole mrs. 31-17 to win over Vanderbilt, get to some coaching search stuff, and then, of course, some uh, some Egg Bowl and big-picture thoughts on this season. Uh, weird game. I don't know how much you can actually take away from it. I think that was my probably biggest takeaway was I don't know how much you can take away from this at all. But uh, we'll get into some of that stuff. What's up, dude? You were at a concert yesterday, chilling in Houston this weekend um good weekend it sounds like
2: yeah no big plans this weekend we went to a uh, a concert last night during the second half so I, di- I didn't get to catch too much of that I watched a little bit of it this morning but like you said there's not a whole lot to take away from this game of of importance for the season and everything they won move on to the next one so not a big deal at all
1: that was the that was the main thing. Like it, it was clear. They came out really well. They scored 10 points on their first two drives started pretty fast. The offense looked pretty good, but you could tell about midway through the second quarter that it might be a little bit of a slog. They were playing sloppy. Um, I don't know how much you, uh, I, it has to factor into it. Some It wasn't a great crowd Vanderbilt clearly was playing with more energy when they scored the touchdown to make it 31 17, you would have thought they just, I mean, like hit a hail mary to send a game into overtime or something. I mean, they they were they were hyped up, and I don't even mean that as like a dig at Vanderbilt. They've had a brutal year, but they were in a game that they probably weren't supposed to be, and they never really threatened to win. But it just the whole thing kind of felt flat. I, I don't know what else like from a not even schematic, but just like on field, what you watched yesterday, how much of that is indicative of anything. I was a little concerned they did suck in the red zone again and they didn't run the ball well again. Do you put anything into the fact that they didn't run all over Vanderbilt?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess the only real takeaway from this game was just the continued struggles in the second halves of games. Uh, I mean, a was a struggle, um, even LSU for a little bit, uh, Auburn. I mean, the past few games, I mean, they, they've been scoring like single-digit points in the second half, and that continued this game. Um, that's like the biggest concern to me. Um, obviously the red zone has been an issue, inability to really gain efficient yards running the ball. I uh, mean, there's no nine and two. So there's not a whole lot to really be that frustrated about, but there are some things that are going to have to at least be looked at. And I'm sure they have for the whole second half of the season, because that's how long this issue has been going on, but you, you will lose to Mississippi state if you can't score when you got the ball in the red zone, because that's, this game has all the makings of being a weird uh, <laughs> heartbreaker or not heartbreaker, but heartache um, just all the way down to the wire. So they, they have to be able to score in the second half.
1: Yeah, they will They will get beat at Mississippi State if they perform the way they have the last couple. Really, it's been about a month or longer than a month at this point, It's really since the LSU game, the way they performed in the red zone. And I don't remember what the numbers were in the red zone off the top of my head against LSU, but that was really the last time it seemed like the offense was clicking down in that area. It is going to be a weird one. I, they did get Jonathan Mingo back last night. I don't know how many snaps he played, but he was dressed out. I think they went to him early in the game, and I don't think he had another reception. I honestly don't remember if he had another target. This was not a game. Is the only game this year that I did not watch a second time, just really did not feel the need to, uh, for something like this as we head into a short weekend into the Egg Bowl. But that was – that was interesting because I don't, we were kind of skeptical of his return at all this year. There was some buzz about him possibly playing against Texas A&M. He suits up. He doesn't play in the game. But he was out there last night. I don't really know what sort of pitch count he's on. Kiffin didn't really give a straight answer when he was asked about that in the postgame. But it's from the way he made it sound, they weren't sure he was going to play in this game. And he went through warm-ups and felt good and said he was ready to go. And so they had him. I guess he got eased back into it. But I suppose going into next week, that's got to help by default because Ole Miss doesn't have a lot of receiver depth. And if you really think about it, I mean, losing Big Ben Brown is huge, him not coming back. But it's really the healthiest they've been since like Austin P or Tulane, whichever one was right before Alabama it's really the healthiest they've been on offense since that point because there were some really, really thin moments offensively in the toward the end of October. So that's a good sign going in.
2: No, it'll be really nice to have at least damn near every starter from the beginning of the season back with the exception of Ben Brown. Um, Yeah, Mingo was in there. I saw him catch one ball and get get hit early and um, he's clearly not a hundred percent, but he wanted to get out there, put him on film, make Mississippi state realize that he's potentially able to play, even if he doesn't play at a hundred percent. and I think that gives you a little hope that going into this short week, that they'll be clicking on, you know, more cylinders than they have been on offense recently. Uh, but at the end of the day, if the defense continues to play like this. And I know Vanderbilt kind of ran up and down on them, but at the end of the day, they only scored 17 points. Um, I mean, they're holding teams to under 20 and under 25. Like we said in the beginning of the year, if they did that, they're going to win a lot of football games. Uh, Mississippi State is going to be a different kind of challenge and a much different kind of team that they've played kind of like the last three weeks. Um, So if the defense is really going to step up, but the offense, like I said earlier, they're going to have to score when they have the opportunities in this next game.
1: Yeah, I was trying to look up the red zone numbers as you were talking there, and I think they had seven red zone possessions – Five scores and i guess one of those would have been a field goal so it wasn't horrendous but again it is vanderbilt and there was some stuff particularly by the goal line on that one drive that was not great at all um but yeah you're right on the defensive aspect of it vander i don't know i mean vanderbilt ended up with 400 some yards of offense they did move the ball better than i think most people would have anticipated vanderbilt would move the ball and will miss but they played the quarterback who has the ability to extend plays with his legs, right. Instead of Ken seals, who's been banged up. And I don't really know what the deal is with that. He seemed like he was pretty good last year or as good as you can be on an 0 and 9 team. Like he seemed like he had a little bit to him. And I was talking to a Vandy guy earlier in the week, and he was just basically saying they, that kid's taken so many hits and he's been banged up and regressed so much that it, they didn't think it was an injury thing if right played. So you at least had a dual threat quarterback in that aspect, but Vanderbilt averaged 5.5 yards a pass and 4.3, I think, yards per rush. I don't have it up in front of me in the right this moment. It seemed like just kind of death by paper cut. It seemed like they took advantage of Ole Miss's propensity sometimes to allow the short passes and keep everything underneath them. And, boy, did they play, take advantage of that. They seemed like they just really – five to eight yard passes they were satisfied with that and they moved the ball up and down the field slowly but it was somewhat effective but I just I don't know how much you would take away from that other than them running as as well as they did I don't I'm trying to look up how many rushing yards they did that was a little concerning but I would probably chalk that up to being flat what did you think of the way Vanderbilt was run able to run the ball I think they ran it 49 times for 213 yards so I mean how they had a lot of plays in this game
2: no they did. Yeah, I mean they, they had the most I mean, what, like 38 minutes of possession, which is a ton. And that usually happens against Ole Miss with tempo and everything. I I just – I chalked this whole game up to just a sandwich look-ahead game. You know, you played A&M game of the year last week. Uh, You win that game. You have a short week coming up against Mississippi State. I mean, it's like a gambler's paradise to take Vanderbilt plus 36 right there. I mean, that's his – as much of a sandwich trap game you can, as you can find. Um, so no, they probably didn't have the same inti- intensity that you would like, or that you would hope. Um, but they also didn't need it. I mean, the game was 31 to nine in the third quarter. I mean, it was not, yeah, it got a little shaky kind of there towards the end, but it was never in doubt. And, and, you know, this is a league where you just win by one more point than the other team. And no one gives a shit about how you look. Uh, your team's nine to. two won seven games in a row at home, all the games this year. I mean, I just the complaining and the frustration with the the style that this team won by at home is just kind of doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it's just it's, it's kind ridiculous. of what we do as
1: Real fans. Or, I, tell, I get it. it. You it's like, kind of what fans know. do. Like they they they're emotional as part of being a fan, but I I don't think it's justified kind of what you're getting at as well. No. I will say It was a – I I was trying to think of the last time I've been bored watching an Ole Miss football game. That was a boring (laughs) game. I had trouble – we were talking right before we were recording. I really had trouble staying focused. I was out of place for the first half that had a second TV and then we actually, it was so boring. We were like, do we want to go eat at halftime? So we went to a restaurant and kind of pulled up at a restaurant. It was, that was the toughest I've had paying attention to an old Miss game in a long time. That was a very boring, frustrating game. So I think there was some of that in it as well.
2: Yeah, usually I would have been like really frustrated. I was going to this concert and missing the second half. But like halfway through the second quarter, I was like, screw this. Like, I don't even care about watching. I'm like, send me the updates when it's over because I know what's going to happen I'm not exactly interested on what's going to happen in the middle. Um, I mean, Vanderbilt's a really bad football team. That played pretty well, all things considered. But Ole Miss let them play well. I mean, that's just kind of what – that's really what happened.
1: Yeah, I've watched Vanderbilt at other times this year. I watched most of their game against Mississippi State. I stayed up for the – as the internet people call it, the Sickos Bowl against UConn. Watched (laughs) the end of that uh, Colorado State game. And I didn't make this point on the post game show because, one, I just forgot, and, two – I um, I didn't figure it would be well received. But like Vanderbilt did play and execute better than they have for most of the season. And again, that's a, there's a decent bit of old miss that goes into that and allowing them to do so. But the quarterback made a couple of throws that I didn't think he was capable of making, and they ran the ball and tackled better than they have at other times this year. I mean, how, watch the the midway through the second quarter through about two minutes left in the third quarter of that state game? And you would be hard-pressed if they didn't have logos on their helmets to believe that that was a college football team, much less a Division One team. <laughs> it was horrible how bad they, how badly they executed. Um, but, again, some of that's with Ole Miss. But I did think Vanderbilt played well, and that didn't help either. Um, but, anyway, I don't know. It's very hard to break down this game. I don't even really know what to talk about. We'll get to some of the coaching stuff, like, search in a second. But there's just there's not a whole lot there. I thought though for a boring game, there was a couple of notes in the post game that I thought was interesting. Kiffin said after the game, he took a few minutes to try to figure out if he was going to rip them or he was going to focus more on like the senior day, the accolades, let's get ready for Mississippi State. We know we have ahead, that type of thing. And he sided with the latter. He wasn't going to rip them. I think his reasoning was I already do that enough, which was, I thought was kind of funny. But he walks in the locker room and he said Matt Corral had the offense over huddled up somewhere over in a corner of the locker room. Doesn't matter. And was doing what basically Kiffin was going to say had he elected to use the ripping strategy already. He said, you know, caught it embarrassing. Don't go out like all that whole thing. Thing. This is nothing to celebrate. And I thought that was really interesting. It's not surprising at this point with Matt Corral, but I thought that was a, uh, an interesting note where Kiffin just said, it's pretty cool when your quarterback is going to say what you were already going to say before you walk in the room.
2: Yeah. I mean, they've got a great connection and understanding on you know what this team is built by. And I mean, that's kind of what, just what leaders do. And that's what Matt has become over these past kind of two years of, really taking over as quarterback and understanding what he needs to do for this team and how important he is for this team. Um, And you mean, you love to see it because yeah, they played like crap and they beat a bad football team. Uh, They're going to have, I mean, it's a short week, so you can't be going out and celebrating and not being prepared for a, a Monday practice, or really it'll be a Tuesday practice on Sunday. um, Just because of the way the schedule is going to work. So, I mean, that's kind of what you would expect out of him and what you would hope out of the team, because I mean, it's such a weird dynamic. I mean, we can talk about this and maybe like a big picture thing, but just what this 14 playoff has kind of done to seasons like Ole Miss is having where kind of the fan apathy and frustration with being potentially 10 and two, I mean, that's just what's, what it's done. It's like, well, you could have been 11 and one and really had a chance at this thing, but instead you're 10 and two and, this Mississippi State game is so big for this team, but it still just kind of doesn't feel that big in the whole scheme of things. And it's just, it's just a weird, I mean, it really has ruined the sport. And when we talk about coaching searches, I'll bring up my my thought on what the hell is happening in this sport. Um, but back to Corral, we'll get to all that stuff later. Uh, that, that's great to see. It's, it's what you'd expect.
1: So I, I do want to get to both those things. You made a couple of great points, but look, we'll might as well get the uh, corral uh, you know, coronation out of the way here because he did announce for the game it was his last game. But before we talk about like some of the legacy stuff with him, I was trying to think about this earlier today because I thought about writing a column about this and sending it out in what I would normally send as a newsletter. I still might do it after the state game. But how you're in closer proximity to these players and actually like in the building and around the program. And of course you need a good quarterback to have a chance that's stating the obvious, but not all of them seem to, there's a leadership factor by default by playing quarterback, but there's guys that I guess are leaders because they're quarterbacks. And then there's guys that the entire team sort of rallies behind and does the whole Kiffin, like Kiffin said, you know, he's saying what I would have said before I even got in the room and had a chance to do it. How, how, rare might be not the right way to ask it, but how rare is that? Like how many guys in a given year, how many teams have quarterbacks that have that quality where they're the undisputed leader of the team vocally and they're receptive to it? Because if, you know, you didn't really back it up and held yourself to the same standard, I imagine they'd be like, this guy's a jackass. I wish he'd stop yelling. How rare is that in a kid?
2: (laughs) Um, I mean, there's really two ways to do it and two ways to be a leader of a football team. There's doing it, you know, by being a vocal leader and doing it by setting an example on the field. Um, I think there's some guys Ole Miss has had a quarterback kind of like Chad Kelly, like Bo Wallace, where they set the example on the field. But Matt, I think, has taken more of a step on, you know, being a vocal leader in the locker room leader and then just automatically gaining respect by being the clearly the best player on the team being the quarterback, doing what he's done these past two years. I mean, that's really how you gain the utmost respect is being able to do it on and off. Um, and it is rare. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that during the Tayamo years who really respected Ta'amu and kind of – I mean, they got the most out of a guy who was supposed to be a, a backup nobody, to be honest. And, I mean, he spent a cup of coffee in the NFL – but I think it's pretty well documented that Tiamu was not exactly the, uh, the vocal on-the-field leader that was probably necessary out of a quarterback in the SEC. And you, you see it around teams in the SEC. But Matt is just kind of a different animal. And even, even Plumlee to an extent, I, I don't know if he really garnered the respect because of his play on the field. But off the field and, you know, before games and stuff, I mean, those guys were ready to kick some ass for him. Despite the ineptitude of that offense. So it really is special to see Matt be able to get that kind of respect and admiration from the team in both
1: ways. You beat me to the the Teamu example, because that's what I was going to use to where it's not, this is not a knock on Tamu at all. He was a very good college quarterback. I think you encapsulated it pretty well. They got certainly the most out of that kid who was not really supposed to be a whole lot when he came into the program. But that was kind of the, I guess, example I was going to use as a contrast is. Talmu is not probably not going to be the guy that was going to do the ripping like Matt Corral did in the locker room last night. That's both not seeming like his personality. He seems like a much calmer, like very kind of not introverted, but very calm and doesn't have a lot to say and sort of just goes out there and plays. And that's not a bad thing to have, but that was the example I was going to use to where like, I didn't feel like he was the undisputed leader of that football team. He was just very good at the most important position, and I think there's a difference. And I just wonder, there's no way to, like, tangibly quantify this, but in games this year that you've seen Ole Miss play well and win, when they went on the road and beat Tennessee, and that win looks better and better by the week. And, you know, they go on the road and they lose to Auburn, but you have the guy come back out you know, limping after he told the training staff, if nothing's broken, I'm going back into this game type of thing. I just wonder if having someone like that is makes you better suited and prepared to go into hostile environments like that. Because Ole Miss, for the most part, has done pretty well in those. Tennessee, I guess, would be the one shining example. And it's not like they'd had a ton of experience doing that. I mean, Hal Corral hadn't started a full season with full crowds until this year.
2: Right. I mean, even last year, like, they were not a great, te- a great team on the road. I mean, they really should have lost that game against Kentucky. They lost, you know, that weird game against LSU. Uh, there, there was a lot of games last year where they just were not playing very well on the road. And this year, um, it's kind of been a, a little bit of a mixed bag. I think that has a little bit to do with the teams they played and kind of the injuries they were facing. Um, I mean, Tennessee, I thought they actually played a pretty good game they had multiple opportunities to blow that one kind of out of the water and couldn't complete it. Uh, Bama, they just got behind, you know, from the, from the get go, they just got behind the fourth downs, killed them. And Auburn, you're missing like every, almost every single starter on your offense, except for the quarterback who was basically 50% of himself, um, which is such a shame about what really could have happened this season. If they had come out with that one and, uh, It's kind of crazy what Auburn looks like now. It makes it feel like a worse loss than it probably really was um, from the outside. But uh, I don't think they're going to be intimidated going to Mississippi State, especially with Corral there. Um, He'll be 100% healthy. The receivers will be damn near 100% healthy. The defense is playing really, really well. And, you know, when you've got a leader like that, you know, Kiffin doesn't really care about this rivalry. So I don't think he's going to have them you know, so juiced up to where they're overthinking this football game. And I don't think Mike Leach is going to do that on the other side either. And these guys like are friends, like they, this thing for them isn't what it used to be for other coaches. Um, So I think you'll see a more level-headed game. And that doesn't mean that it won't be some, you know, some fighting and some, you know, some typical stuff, nothing crazy, but you know, some stuff that happens in rivalry games, but I think they will be focused. I think Corral won't let it get to their heads. Um, and he's been so much more cool headed, level headed these past two years. than, of course, during the fight and the egg bowl and whatever year that was. So it's huge to have him kind of guiding them to that game.
1: What comes to mind when you think if I were like, if I say what does Matt Corral's legacy, cause I don't want to do like, where does he rank among Ole Miss quarterbacks? Cause I think that's dumb and tired and we're not, you know, hosting Ole Miss's version of get up here with Mike Greenberg, but like, where what do you think of when you think of his legacy because he's a really fascinating story and the way all this came to be because when he committed they kind of needed each other right he'd gotten dropped by florida that was the second school he'd gotten dropped from you know that florida thing seemed more of like a fit when mullen took over whereas you know the usc thing was why did you beat the shit out of wayne gretzky's son
2: and which never was actually true which is so funny like he never even fought the kid really yeah i mean read the um Someone who did the article, uh, some, some guy for CBS did an article. Dennis Dodd. Right? I
1: wrote it. I read it this week actually when I was preparing to write about crowd. funny you say Yeah. That. Yeah.
2: If you, if you remember in that article, it, it was like a yelling shoving match at a basketball game. It right. wasn't like an actual fight. They got turned into something crazy. And you know, that's just freaking social media and all these losers and all these, no you know, offensive people that work for rivals, but these guys doing these rankings I and mean, they dropped them from like a five star or like almost a three star because of an alleged fight against a famous kid that made him move schools, um, this just so stupid. But um, yeah, continue with what you're going
1: for. No, yeah, no, I think that's kind of funny.
2: No, I didn't I guess, know he
1: got dropped to star because that seems impossibly yeah, stupid.
2: Oh, it's just you know, these guys.
1: <laughs> Score one for the stars don't matter crowd. There, that's good stuff. But he gets told so he you know, they they needed each other because. Matt Luke had just landed a job in which I think virtually everyone was like, well, this guy's not qualified for it. And he needed some momentum. And when Corral committed, that was a big time momentum boost right after that 2017 season. Right before. Was that the first year of the early signing period? I want to say it was maybe 2018 or seven, somewhere around there.
2: I think 18 or 19 was the first one. I really think I think it was 18 was the first one.
1: OK, so but he gets to commit after that. So he gets the commitment in December and you're like, All right, well, you know, these two are. It's funny that if you go back and like read what everyone wrote, including myself at the time, it's like, well, these two, you know, these two have hitched their wagons to each other. Their collective futures are tied to one another. And like, I guess that sort of ended up being partially true for Luke, but not really for Kraut. But anyway, he comes in as raw. He sits back, you know, and watches the first year behind Tamu Then he gets into the entire offseason being billed as the, you know, future of the program the undisputed face of the program they took him to sec media days as a freshman they made a gigantic deal out of that um if we are going back and watching some of those videos from corral at sec media as a freshman he just handles himself and the way he talks is more different and part of that's just growing you know we've talked about this before there's a huge age difference between 18 and 21 you grow up a lot in those three years and those are very you know informative years when you kind of find out a lot about yourself and you grow into, you know, a more confident, I think, mature individual. But anyway, then you have the Egg Bowl fight at the end of that year where he, and he was ready to have some with whoever that uh, defensive back was. I couldn't remember who who exactly it was. Too lazy to go back and look it up. And you have that moment where he's, like, hugging Matt Luke and he's borderline hysterical and, you know, Luke gives him, like, the very Matt Luke-ish speech about it's okay, we're going to learn from this, love each other, blah, 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 get better. Only to have the plug pulled on him four games into you know his first year, really his freshman year. I think it was his redshirt freshman year. And then they use him sp- periodically in things that it made in a way that made no sense. And then all of a sudden they ask him to lead an egg bowl comeback to where he's literally shirking play calls from the sideline, telling Braylon Sanders, "Hey, don't run the play that Rich Rod called. Do this instead." <laughs> and he leads the comeback that gets you know spoiled by the Elijah Moore thing. I'm basically doing unnecessary play by play here. But at that moment, he had every reason to leave. I mean, with the way the transfer portal is these days, it really is kind of shocking that he's still there. And some of that's a credit, I guess, to Kiffin and his staff for convincing him to stay. But, man, he had plenty more options. Like, I almost think if I was in his head at that point, and by putting myself in his shoes, it's it's like almost like you're spurned by the place rather than the people that put you in that situation. Like, I would almost want a fresh start just to get a new change of scenery in the most literal sense. And then he stays, and this staff, obviously, it's well-documented what they've done to transform into who he is. That was a very long-winded you know, recap of Corral's career, but what comes to mind when you think of his legacy? Because I think he's a very important piece in two eras of Ole Miss football, uh, for the lack of a better phrase. What do you think of?
2: Uh, It's kind of an interesting, tough one to handle. Uh, I think he will be remembered as the guy who – I don't want to say saved Ole Miss, you know, but kind of brought Ole Miss back to relevancy, ushering in this 12-team playoff era, which is going to be a completely different college football era than the four-teamer. The four-teamer has been total nonsense. Every single year it has been the same teams. No one cares. The 12-team is a a team like Ole Miss now has a chance to be in the playoff. Whereas in the past years, I mean, even in 15, if they beat Memphis and Arkansas, I still don't know if they get in. I really don't. I think they may put Alabama in over them, truly. Um, So I think he'll be remembered as the guy who brought this team, this program back to relevancy. And some people will say that's Lane Kiffin. And I think even Kiffin would say that if two isn't on the field, then this thing isn't what it is right now. And nailed I mean, it there. Yeah,
1: it, this doesn't happen without the yeah. dynamic playmaker, the most important position. And the fact that he stayed and became that, I think is important. A lot of credit goes to Kiffin, but you're right. that This doesn't happen if they're searching for a quarterback and using Plumlee to bide their time.
2: Exactly. It's a players not plays league and Corral is the best quarterback in this league, even though, you know, I think Bryce Young is really, really good. I still think Corral is, is better at this point in his career. And, um, I mean, he he's just a different kind of guy. He's been so great on and off the field at Ole Miss, especially these past few years. I know, you know, freshmen are freshmen and things happen, but I think his legacy will be so much different than a guy like Kelly um, because Kelly was only here for two years, really, 15 and, like, I mean, three-fourths of 16 because he got hurt. So he wasn't there long enough to really garner the kind of, I think, respect and the memories that Corral has brought from kind of all four years he was here. Um, I think it's just a different kind of dynamic. And I think he'll be remembered in a more, not glorified way. I can't really think of the correct vocabulary word, but kind of in a, a better light and a more memorable light than uh, like a Bo Wallace or a Chad Kelly, because he brought the same amount of success with, you know, more longevity and kind of just a different era of of this
1: team. You're dead on with that because look, Kelly, this is somewhat ironic to say, because in 2016, Chad Kelly, I'm not sure there was a player on any team in the country that was asked to do more on a given Saturday for an offense than Chad Kelly was. But when he got there in 15, that was a team that was already ready to launch. They just needed to find a quarterback. They had all the pieces in place to contend for the West and become a college football playoff contender. They just needed to find someone to slide in and fill the role at quarterback and credit to Chad Kelly. I'm not undermining his career. He's a phenomenal player, but as you mentioned, bringing Ole Miss back and kind of out of the depths of despair, look at the talent levels surrounding Chad Kelly, both on the offense and defensive side of the ball that he was playing alongside. And then look at Corral. There have been times over the last two seasons really where corral has put this entire team and program for for, in a figurative sense on his back because that was one of the worst defenses in college football last year and if you talk to anyone in 20 years from now i don't think anyone will be able to tell you that old miss went four and five in the regular season because it was a blast to watch because they were scoring a shit ton of points and they knew they had to go put up 40 every time to win and granted elijah Moore, pretty good football player you could see him kind of coming into his own in the nfl already But elsewhere, it's not the same level of talent across the board. And so I think that's where Corral's a little bit different to where, as you mentioned, you're dead on. He kind of brought Ole Miss out of a bad time and ushered them into a new, much brighter era. But he had to shoulder a lot to make that happen. And I think the perfect thing about Corral, too, is he's he – he wore a lot of the bad more than the good. Like his big shine in this coronation of Matt Corral is still only lasted as they have one game left, technically less than a season because the narrative last year was, yeah, he's good, got a big arm, but damn, he makes terrible decisions. And however true that was, fair, unfair is not really the point. Like he's had more bad years at Ole Miss than he's had good. Like his shine has sort of been short. Now he could come back next year if we are you know, for the sake of the argument, but of course that was never going to happen but I think no. that's what makes it perfect as well is he went through a lot of bad times for a very finite period of, you know, having a lot of success. He hasn't had a ton of success here in his career long term. And I think that kind of embodies his legacy as well in a way, if that makes any sense at all.
2: No, I think you're right. I think I think fans love to see some guys persevere through some adversity, you know, those typical buzzwords we <laughs> use with football. Um, but it is true in, in this era of guys like transferring when things don't go right in the first year, you know, this guy stayed here for like four years. <laughs> did you and, think he was
1: staying? Honest opinion, after, the, after that 19 Egg Bowl, a, after that night, coaching change aside, did you think he was staying?
2: I, I didn't know, but it, it's such a weird deal because you watch practice and you always knew Corral was super, super talented, but, you know, the, the offense in 19 was not fit to him and it was not really fit to anybody in this age of football. Um, that's just the reality. It just was kind of an outdated system, but that's, there was a lot of blame to be placed on Corral and certain aspects of it as well. I mean, he, he really didn't understand it. Um, he, he was kind of, he was checking checks. He just kind of like was not fully there not fully matured in the kid that he is now. And I think yeah, you can definitely blame that on some of the coaches as well for not having him prepared. But there's also a little bit to go around. Um, and Levy and Kiffin came in. They ins- kind of changed the whole dynamic, and he changed along with it, which is a credit to him and the, co- and the new coaches. Um, I-, I didn't know what he was going to do, and I hadn't really thought about it. And, you know, I, I would have guessed that I wouldn't have been surprised if he had left. That would have been my sentiment, but kind of being in it, you know, when kids transfer it's always kind of either super, super shocking or not shocking at all. There's kind of really no in between. And for him, I just didn't think he was going to leave. And I know that there's a real chance that he was going to, uh, but I'm not surprised he stayed and stuck it out because that's what you should do. If you're a kid, you you picked the school for a reason you know, there's a coaching change, give the coach some time, you know, at least give them some time to see like, what's this going to be like? I already like this place. Now, you know, there's no reason to move my life to Eugene Oregon, where I guess he was supposedly going to go. So I think he definitely made the right decision, obviously. Um, So that's, it's great to see, but um, it was kind of a definitely interesting time with all the players.
1: This is a random thought I had earlier in the week when I was preparing to write about that. It has nothing to do with anything. He would look sick in an Oregon green uniform and that helmet. <laughs> like he would he already rocks the old miss uniform pretty well. He would have looked pretty cool. Anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. There was a note last night that he had in his press conference that I thought was kind of funny and both telling, where he gave the for full context first. He gave this answer about learning to prepare and all that stuff and how that this staff has taught him how. And he said, you know, that's no. No knock on Richrod, or no disrespect to Richrod, but he kind of sh- showed his hand before he answered the question because Nick Suss asked him, "What do you think the difference is in you this year than when you walked into Starkville two years ago?" And he, his first instinct, he kind of had to think about, like, like you know, place yourself back in time. What year was that? He goes, "What year was that? Was that Richrod?" And like he think, like, I just thought it was hilarious. He thinks of his years in coordinators, and then that being the first thing that sticks out. When you're about to answer a question about the way you prepare and stuff, I thought it was hilarious. Where he goes, What year was that? Was that Rich Rod? And I was like, Well, that's kind of telling. But and he wasn't yeah. even well,
2: trying. Well, we did. Well, I, in a little, in fairness to him, I mean, he had four offensive coordinators. Exactly. That's another aspect. So you, you base your years, not by buy off the actual date, but by buy off the coordinator. Um, I think just the coaching style is the difference between going from Longo to Rich Rod to Levy. I mean, it is from, you know, like the lowest lows to the highest intensity highs back to Levy, who, I mean, is it, it, the offense is intense, but the, and the practice is intense, but Levy as a coach is, you know, there's not a negative thing coming out of his mouth ever, literally never, it will never come out of his mouth. Whereas Rich Rod, it's like, even if you complete the pass, you're going to get motherfucked. I mean, it's just a completely different dynamic and. Uh, Matt, you know, he's a tough ass kid, but that's not exactly the best way to go about handling him. Whereas, I think the reason why Plumley played so much is Plumley just loved it. Like, he did <laughs> not KD, he, he truly, he like <laughs> know, Rich Rod just ripping into him. And Plumley's just like, you know, he's so just kind of like just a weirdly competitive kid that he like, he just loved it. He just like was like, fine, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to show him again. Um, and you know, none of that worked, but still that's a little behind the scenes. Whereas Levy, you know, the, the dude is just, he understands kids these days so well, and he just is never negative. That doesn't mean he's not out there teaching and like showing you what you did wrong, but he's not just going to use like this platform or one play during practice as like a, you know, high horse. Let me just rip this into this kid to show I'm the boss because he knows that doesn't work. And he knows how talented Corral and some of these guys are offense on. So there's no reason just to bang and shit on their confidence all day long. Um, and Kiffin's kind of the same way, you know, it, it, it'll come out, but it rarely comes out in kind of like execution thing. It's more of like a, an overarching thing. Like, you know, if they're kind of slow in practice, getting from drill to drill, that's when he'll get frustrated, but it's like, he doesn't... would have
1: ripped him last night, big picture stuff. Like we played like yeah, shit. Absolutely. Not one minor mistake.
2: No, like he's not going to bring a guy over the sideline, you know, like Corral after he, you know, let's say someone fumbles a ball or throws an interception, you know, makes a huge mistake. Like that's not where you're going to see Kiffin just, you know, go rip into someone like Kirby would, if a DB missed a coverage, Um, it will really be like a big picture thing in a team meeting or in a practice where people aren't, you know, sprinting from drill to drill. It's that kind of stuff, you know, the the overarching stuff where Kiffin really gets frustrated and Levy really gets frustrated. It's not the, you know, the play to play day to day thing.
1: That's some really fascinating insight you offered there and a great point and it, it, how we can go there. We'll do the rich rod right thing. Now I've told this story on the podcast before, but well, two parts of it. One, there's a video of me in the 2019 egg bowl to where my uh, super talk host, I think has a video of this to where anytime we'll Miss had said so the way that press box is set up, which is old crappy and outdoors, but whatever, no one cares about my complaints. It's right next to the coach's box. So you can see directly into the coordinator's box from where you sit at Davis Wade stadium in the press box. And every time Ole Miss had some sort of negative player and incompletion, my head would whip over to the left, like whiplash to watch Rich Rod's reaction because he acts like a toddler that just shit his pants in the sandbox or something like just completely can't control his emotions and melting down and like grabbing his headset and like squeezing it and things like that. And I was like, dude, we run a 200 of the 150 of these plays a game. Like you, this guy's going to have a heart attack. How the hell did he make it 11 games? And then the second part of the story that I've told, I think probably 10 times in this podcast was after the, that game, they lost at Auburn where the defense played really well and they just couldn't get anything going offensively. We're waiting around in the tunnel uh, next to the visiting locker room, waiting on to talk to Luke and the coordinators and uh, Rich Rod was the last to come out. I'm not even actually sure he ever came out this night. I can't remember if he did, but we were waiting a long time and you can hear him through these brick walls yelling. It was definitely rich rod. Like it was as clear as day. You could hear him cussing. He was using cuss word combinations that I'm not even sure made sense. I was like, I've never heard this before. And oh, It gets
2: all over the wait. place with him.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I was like, does that even make sense? Like, is that English? But also I knew it was English because I knew the cuss word. I just didn't understand the combination. And I texted, I think at the time Richard cross, cause he was allowed in the locker room for post-game radio interviews. Cause of course he worked for the university. We were not. And I was just like, who is he yelling at? And he goes, really? No one. He's just walking around yelling. He's not addressing anyone. He's just walking around the locker room yelling, which I was like, this guy's a maniac. I thought he was kind of humorous. He wasn't great at his job. But I think that type of coaching style, as you mentioned, because it wanted to see it, it emphasized the importance of having good, competent coordinators. I think that's obvious. But I've had, we've had this discussion with Mike Bianco at times where he's like, kids these days aren't soft. They're just different. And you have to treat them a little bit differently. Because Mike Bianco, I mean, stuck a lump of coal up. That guy's ass. you would have a diamond in two weeks. He's had to adjust a little bit and not because he was the king of ripping them. Like every single time they had a bad game or something happened, he would never cease to rip them, sometimes even in game. He talked about that 2019 year where he almost lost a job. They turned it around, got one game away from Omaha, about he had to loosen up and he had to treat these kids differently. And he's like, they're not soft they're just different. And it took me a while to realize I have to approach them differently. And it sounds like what you're describing, Levy has that. And I'm just curious, you've been around it. Do you think that old way of coaching is going by the wayside? Because it seems to add up to unsuccessful tenures more so the more and more you hear about old-fashioned guys that just scream and rip kids. Look, works for Kirby Smart. There's obvious exceptions to the rule. But do you think that style of coaching is going by the wayside? Oh,
2: Yes and no, I would say. Um, I think it just – the the point doesn't hit as hard if you're just getting ripped for, like, the 13th time in a season or the 20th time during a practice. Like, it just – you it just kind of goes over your, your head eventually. And I think the difference with Kirby is that his, you know, his recent track record, what they've done there, like he's kind of earned the ability, you know, along with Sabin and guys who do that, kind of earned the ability to do it. And, um, you know, I love Rich Rod. He is truly one of the funniest people I've ever met. And he is a huge name in football. And, you know, I worked with him and he, you know, treated all of us with respect. And that's a lot from a guy who has been a lot of places, been very successful. You know, I didn't think his stuff was kind of working in 2019. So it's not working. It's hard to kind of gather the respect of the team when the offense isn't working and then you're just getting shit on all day. Um, And it wasn't all day, you know, I mean, he's he'll compliment the hell out of you and treat you like a king if you do everything he wants to do right. Um, You know, it it goes both ways. Um, And he really does care about the kids. It's not like he hates all these kids. That's that's not the case at all. It's just he's just a fiery, you know, old school kind of coach that you just don't see as much anymore. Um, I don't think it's gone in football or really any of these sports. Um, I just, but I think the whole Bianco, you know, these kids aren't soft. They're just different. I think that could not be more true because these kids want to be coached. They want to get after it and they want the coaches to care enough to get after it. But, you know, just getting your, you know, your ass chewed out every single practice for messing up a simple technique. It just doesn't have the effect that it may have. People may have thought it did years ago and you can just see it like, you know, everyone talks about the corral, you know, he th- the sixth interception game or whatever it was against Arkansas. You never once saw him get yelled at. Because what, what what's that gonna do? Is that really gonna help after all this time? If he's your guy, like what's the point of just chewing him out for making mistakes when trying to win the game because your defense is the worst in college football? <laughs> so they, they oh, just sad. take it, yeah, they just take a different attitude. These coaches do it differently. Um, and it really is interesting from like a guy like Longo who doesn't really talk a whole lot. You know he's he's kind of not a nerd, but he just kind of goes about his his stuff differently. He's so low key to going from Rich Rod, who was just one cloud nine every practice, going back to Levy, he was kind of a mix in between them. You know Corral's gone through so many different things, and uh, um, you know it's just it's kind of a fascinating. You know getting back to his comment about was that Rich Rod year? You know kind of circling all of it back. It, it makes sense for him going by coordinator, not by actual year.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're right. I think that's well said. And I think we covered that pretty well. Rich rod though is one, you're dead right. He is a funny person. There's people that are like corny, funny, like I call it like TV funny or like athlete funny to where it's like, oh ha, ha this guy like knows how to make like a very unoriginal joke and you know maybe clown on himself a little bit. Rich rod is a funny human being, he's very witty, like he's very, he's very like quick, uh witted. He kind of has some like his snark like, comes out through rage sometimes, if that makes any sense at all. like He's very snarky in some senses, but it's, it comes out like more bluntly and in your face. He, uh, but he's an interesting figure in college football, and he pointed this out one time. He was making a joke, actually, about how he thinks he should have a statue outside of Bryant-Denny Stadium because he basically took the Alabama job, then decided to go to Michigan, and so he thinks he deserves some credit for Saban's run as the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport. But he's the an interesting figure in the history of the sport. What happens if he does go to Alabama and he doesn't go to Michigan? Neil McCready could write a book. McCready, sorry, five years in, I keep doing that. Could probably write a pretty long story or book about that because I think he was covering Alabama at the time. But that's a complete non-sequitur. Rich Rod's just a fascinating picture. Character so in the history of college football. Um, so, like, I don't know. I just always found it interesting. But he is a funny guy. But anyway, you're right. And, you know, the last kind of thing on Corral – he needed stability around him. And he finally got that with this staff and this coaching staff. And that was the other part of his answer where he's like, look, there's no knock on rich but these guys taught me how to prepare a different way. And like what goes into really being fully prepared an opponent and how to watch film and things like that. And just stuff I didn't learn before. And we've heard him talk about that before, but you also got to give credit to the kid. Once you have the stability, he's done his best to make good on it it seems like he's always trying to be coach, trying to learn more. Like, you know, there's some kids where you have a good coach, they make him look better than he is sometimes. There are cases of that. But I just think in Corral I think one of the biggest things you have to credit him for was – he was self-aware enough to realize, hey, these guys are competent and I need to take advantage of this opportunity. It seems like he's gone out of his way to kind of suck out as much information as possible from these guys that clearly know what they're doing and it's led to success on the field.
2: No, I mean, that's the whole thing. And so, If you've got the opportunity, taking advantage of it is, is everything. And he has clearly, clearly done that. He's just a, a whole different mindset. I mean, he – literally, Matt Holichek, who's the uh, – kind of like he's Levy's GA quarterbacks coach still. I mean, he picked up Matt like every morning at, you know, five o'clock. I don't think Matt had a car. So he has a car on campus. So Holacek picks him up every morning. And I was there very early. And literally, we got there at the same time every single day. And Matt usually was earlier. Um, I mean, he's just done everything you expect a quarterback, you know, at this stage of his career to do. And He's taken the success, you know, in stride and done everything you'd expect of him. So it's it's awesome to see. and It's really great for him because he is such a great kid too. Um, he's funny and, you know, he's a great leader and it's awesome to see. And he's going to get some real money coming the,
1: up soon. I was just going to say last thing, but that made me think of one more thing that I wanted to ask you. I've thought about it times this year. You mentioned the Wayne Gretzky fight thing with his son not even being a real fight. The narrative that the kid had like real baggage – seems like a failure in both media and how we consume stories and information. Now it seems heavily overrated because the kid's never gotten in trouble. it Ole miss off the field. Like, I mean like real trouble. Real and I don't true. think he did before that, like as a recruiting, when you guys were trying to evaluate him, it seemed like the whole, this kid has baggage was just kind of, bullshit like it was lazy because he did get dropped from two schools the second one correct me if I'm wrong here but it seemed like more of a fit thing Mullen wanted to go with someone else
2: no he went with Emory Jones instead
1: right and so the USC thing was one I thought a knee-jerk reaction when looking back on it now but I just think the narrative that the kid had baggage and like you know the buzzword is character flaws which is one of my least favorite phrases in media that just seemed like a very untrue narrative in a lazy one. Like the kid doesn't actually have real baggage. In your opinion, does he?
2: I mean, I think he was definitely um, probably a little bit of a, a hotter head than most kids are. Um, but this idea that he was like a total red flag at all times was, was completely bullshit. And, you know, that's what you get when you get these 45 year olds coming, covering 16 year olds and they take it too seriously you know, that's what you get. You get guys like trying to create these narratives to, to like justify their, you know, their stupid little rankings. And, um, that's what happened to this kid. You know, this is, this is a kid's life. <laughs> and, you know, he got dropped by USC and the Florida thing wasn't a fit with Mullen and, you know, he ends up still at an SEC school because that's how good he was. Um, and the whole story behind it was, Oh, like, you know, he's just such a red flag, you know, really got to do your due diligence on this kid. Uh, lots going on here but really he was just in the limelight from the beginning because he's playing you know quarterback in Los Angeles and starting as a freshman out there in these big high schools where that doesn't happen a lot um, and of course the you know he's dating uh, I think Brett Michaels his daughter and you know the Wayne Gretzky thing so it's a high profile stuff and the kids at freaking TMZ when he's like 17 like it's just a lot um, and I, I think that's part of that article too and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's total bullshit. And you see it all the time um, with some of these kids are like, oh, yeah, like red flags or like, oh, academics of like blah, 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 blah. All these guys talking in these articles. And, you know, sometimes that's real. But a lot of times it's just total nonsense. It like doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think the Zach Evans thing is like a prime example of this. Um, so this kid, Zach oh. Evans, He came to campus twice while I was there and could not have been better both times. Truly was just quiet, soft-spoken, you know, taking notes during meetings, like respectful, like no issues at all. And clearly was just a kid who, you know, I guess had a few maturity deals at, at North Shore and clearly was surrounding himself with just not the right people. You know, his recruitment was you know, wildly known to be pretty crazy. And there's a lot of dynamics to that. But once you meet the kid, you know, you're expecting this kid either to be the biggest head or like the biggest, you know, just a hole. And that's just not the case. And after you're reading all these articles and shit about him, you're just expecting the worst. And he comes to campus and like could not be nicer and easier to deal with. You're like, this is so typical. You know, this kid's just a high profile kid that all these guys are just trying to nitpick and, you know, create narratives, and it's just not true, and I think Corral had a little bit of that to an extent, um, and it just showed, and it's just so frustrating sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that was the first thing that popped in my head. Uh, another one of my least favorite phrases is due diligence. Like, what the hell does that actually mean? Are you going to make the kid go see a shrink, or are you going to make him take the college version of the wonderlick Like, what the hell does that actually mean? I think that's such a stupid buzzword, but I think that, but, um, Zach Evans was the first person that came to mind when we were talking about this as another parallel example. So that's interesting. I think that's a, there's probably a story to be done about that about the way we covered this stuff, but that story for another day, kind of spinning this forward, Corral's legacy and all that, there is a golden opportunity for him to offer author one final chapter. And look, I know he'll probably play the bowl game. That's not what I'm getting at, but one like signature moment, and that's this Thursday night in Starkville against Mississippi State. State's playing really good football. This game has turned into – beginning of the year, it was like, oh, I don't know what state will be, but that's always going to be tough. Could that be the difference between Ole Miss hitting their over-under win total type of thing to three weeks into the year it was like Ole Miss is going to kick the living shit out of Mississippi State to now this game is relevant for the right reasons for the first time since 2015 – It's going to be a fun, entertaining football game. And when you say that, it has nothing to do with the kind of clown show that might accompany it that it has over the last half decade. And there's an opportunity for him to author a signature performance. If he has a huge game, I think that will be one of the more memorable moments of his career. If Ole Miss goes over there and wins and he plays really well, it's going to be something I think you remember him by. And the other aspect of it, I don't know about you, I think they're going to need it. They haven't been sharp offensively in five, five and a half, six weeks. If they're going to go over there and win, they're going to need him to be special. And I think that's going to be with his arm and his legs. Set yeah. is pretty much 100%. Uh, he kind of let that slip last week after AM. m He's like, one more week, I think I'll be 100%. I don't think he got dinged up too good in this game, That at least nothing noticeable. No. But. I think he's going to need to be, spe- to be special if Ole Miss has a chance, and that's going to kind of bookend his legacy perfectly if he delivers.
2: So, I guess one thing before we get to Mississippi State, are, are we sure he's going to play the bowl game no matter what? So, I don't know. I um, are, are we sure? Because th- this gets back to the whole playoff thing. You know, if they win this game and go in the Sugar Bowl, like that game just doesn't mean anything anymore. I know. It's just not the same. Uh, I mean, I think Ole Miss fans will travel well. But, God, I mean, there's a real chance they're playing freaking Oklahoma State again in the Sugar Bowl. Like, if that ends up being the game, like, what's the Superdome going to be? 60% full? Maybe. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, I'm not so sure he plays the bowl game no matter what. And this is no insider knowledge. I do not know. But what what does he really have to gain from it? Like, I'm not sure it really means anything. I,
1: I, I could not agree more. I do have a take on this, though, because it's something, and I don't. I haven't looked up enough stuff, and this would take forever, and I'm too lazy to do it. One, I think you're dead on. Like, the, they devalued the bowl games with this college football playoff thing. But whether it was, I think I Dread another year, so it's not a great example. For whatever reason, these other New Year's Six bowl games, if there is any meaning to them at all, it does seem like there are fewer opt-outs in those for whatever reason. It may not even be anything other than, Oh, it's the sugar bowl. Like there's for some, I don't know. I could be wrong about this. I don't know if you sense the same thing for some reason, there's new year, six bowls, fiesta, sugar, whatever the ones that aren't in the playoff on that given year, there seems to be some sort of thing about it. The hype, the prestige, there's really nothing else to it that draws players that probably don't have anything to gain from playing in that game versus opting out of say the capital one or the outback bowl. Do you sure. think there's anything sure. to that at all? Because I'm kind of with you. I always wonder that I was like, are we sure he's going to play the bowl game? Cause he doesn't have anything to gain the game in actuality, doesn't mean any hardly anything at all. Um, i agree with you on that. But if you notice that at all, like if they lose, let's just say they lose on Thursday night and they don't make a new Year's six bowl. And it's like the capital one, whatever the one in Jacksonville is, you get my point. One of those Florida bowls, the next tier. Then I think that's probably almost like I would probably favor him not playing in it. Whereas for some reason, these New Year Six Bowls seem to entice guys to play more, even though they're the exact same from a meaning standpoint as the other ones. Does that make any sense?
2: No, it, it completely does. Um, I guess my best thing would be like, OK, so this team started the year in Atlanta playing in playing in the, the, the new stadium Mercedes Benz. Let's say that they somehow end up – they win the game and they're not in the Sugar Bowl and they have to go back to Atlanta in the Peach Bowl and they're playing – who's a team that, like, no one would give a
1: shit about their playing them?
2: Uh, Cincinnati. The Oklahoma
1: State, honestly.
2: So yeah, Oklahoma State or Cincinnati. Yeah, that's you a good know, one. If you're Matt, like, man, I'm going to go back to Atlanta playing the exact same stadium in a bowl game that, yeah, is important, but, like, is it really – I just – Something about it tells me he just might not play in that game. I I don't know that for sure. I don't know anything about it. I just – the playoff has just devalued these games from a – even from like a program momentum standpoint. I mean, when Georgia lost in the Sugar Bowl to Texas, do you think anyone really gave a shit? Like, no. It's like Who cares? Like, Texas has sucked ever since. Like, it just doesn't matter like it used to because all that matters is the playoff now. So I wouldn't blame him either way, but we can get to Mississippi State now. That just—I think it's a conversation that had to be had because there's no guarantee he plays. I think he would, but there is no guarantee that he would.
1: I think that what ends up deciding it, and I this I, this is like a anti logic take here or argument, but the way he's talked about this team, he tweeted after he finally got back on social media, or whatever, and tweeted after the A and M game. This team is different. Like no one understands what this team means to me. If they right. ca- finish the job and they win the egg bowl and they go to it, I think he plays for plays it be, just because this year finish the job, let's do it. That oh, yeah. type of thing. Let's finish the season out. But in, you know, in a vacuum, he, you're right. He doesn't gain anything from it. I do think he plays it for that reason and kind of the whole buy in aspect, which you know, it's not, that's what fans want to see. That's the novelty of it. You know, you still had people that got mad at Elijah Moore and Kenny Yaboa for opting out last year, which was so dumb and no one oh, sh- reasonable and yeah. rational, like knocked them for that, but fans got upset. Right. But fans like to see that novelty aspect, but I think it's real enough there to where I think that would be a reason why he would play if that kind of aligns with what you were thinking no
2: no no. i don't i don't disagree with you at all i think this kids wired differently and would play even if they lost I think he still might play but I, it's, it's a conversation that had to at least be brought up yes. because just you know that's just the facts of where this game is at these days
1: but mississippi state this is a golden opportunity for kind of one last corral legendary chapter i for whatever reason i think the tennessee game Wind up being one that people go back and watch and remember because it's just him carrying the football thirty times and being their only yeah. form of offense for like twenty five minutes of the game. <laughs> like that, that like he has an opportunity if he kind of does something like that and for I hate this phrase but puts the team on his back. That's kind of going to just be the cherry on top to his career, and Ole Miss is definitely going to need it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think this game is bigger, so much bigger just in an Ole Miss you know big picture look than it is because it's the Egg Bowl. Um, I've always said that they just have, they don't have to devalue the game, but just not, this can't make or break your season. And I don't think it would, but I think just from winning 10 games for the, it's, it's just, it's more important the game than it is the fact that they're trying to beat Mississippi state is what I'm trying to say. If that makes any sense. No, it does. Uh, You're
1: exactly right. There's a middle ground in terms of just playing into the kind of the Mississippi state bullshit aspect of it and falling, like falling into that where it's, you know, make or break, make special uniforms for the game and all that. Right. But this game is a huge game for Ole Miss because they have a chance to do something they've never done before. And I mean, talk about, you know, we just kind of started talking about how that, and we'll get to this in just a second, but the bowl games don't mean anything in the system, but like, it still is the sugar bowl from a program standpoint. Like there's a lot on the line still, if that, that's kind of what I was getting at.
2: No, no, absolutely. And um he's going to have to play his best game uh, because Mississippi state, no, you know, the record doesn't show it, but th- this team has played like a different football team, the second half of the season, um, which is kind of like a Mike Leach specialty when it kinds of starts to click, you know, he gets in a rhythm and a groove on how he wants his offense to go and, uh, you know, credit to Will Rogers. He's played really, really, really well. Um, He's not spectacular. He's not better than Corral. Like literally at any part of being a quarterback, he is not better than Corral, but he runs this system perfectly. And he uh, distributes the ball exactly how they want him to. And when you do that and they've got some pretty good playmakers on the outside um, and an offensive line that is so, so, so much better than last year, which is why they just weren't that good last year because people could rush eight and still get to Rodgers. This year, that's much, much more difficult. Um, So Corral is going to have to be efficient, Ole Miss is going to have to be able to run the ball because Mississippi State, they go slow and they keep the ball. And, you know, these dump-offs are their versions of runs. And if you get to a point where the defense is out there having to make open field tackles for 35 minutes in a game, you know, that's what they want you to do. Um, So I I wouldn't be surprised if this is – a game where Lane doesn't go as much tempo. I think he's seen that if they do that in the first half, I think he even mentioned it, um, that they kind of get tired and lack of days cool in the second half. And I think that might be one of their issues. I, I see them, you know, they're going to go fast because what they do, but I don't think they're going to go warp speed in this game because they know the lack of depth on defense. You know, if Mississippi State has the ball for over 30 minutes, like they're going to be in trouble. Um, so I think that'll be kind of like one of the keys to winning this game.
1: I think you're right. And it's interesting. He did mention that in his post game and he talked about, we don't rotate offensive line and we don't have great depth with the receiving court being banged up. It makes sense. I mean, Nick Suss made this point last week when he was pinch hitting on the Sunday edition of this podcast, where he's like, I don't ever understand. Like it's a double-edged sword in the sense. No one ever talks about the offense getting tired because they've been on the same, like, you know, tempo wears down the defense, blah, blah, blah. That will like you get to the 10th, 11th play of a tempo drive. Like the offense has played the, exact amount of plays and, you know, exerted similar levels of energy. And like, they're kind of tired too. And I do think that's part of the fourth, third quarter struggles, excuse me, coming out in the second half. Um, sure. I do think that kind of plays into it, but I think you're probably right in that. How do you see them matching up with Mississippi? State? I know that's such a general question, but it does seem with old Miss's strength seemingly being in the secondary and them having developed a pass rush with Cedric Johnson, Sam Williams, we've talked about that. A lot. It does seem like a decent matchup for Ole Miss, at least on the surface. What do you think in terms of how they match up defensively versus uh, what State wants to do on offense?
2: I don't think they match up um, poorly. I I think it's a decent matchup. Uh, I think they kind of have to copy, you know, which is crazy, the game plan that LSU had uh, more than any other team. I know that was earlier in the year, but. Um, I mean, Ole Miss does it. They don't – they limit explosive plays. And against this team, you just – you cannot give up explosive plays. So, then you have to keep everything in front of you, tackle really, really well. And LSU did that, forced them to – I mean, they had to march down the whole field. And a lot of times they would get down there. But, you know, once they get into the red zone, not as much space, this team really struggles because Rodgers, like, he's he's decently accurate, but he just doesn't have the zip. So he struggles to fit it in the tight spots. And once you get down the red zone, that's all you got. Um, and Sam Williams and Cedric Johnson are going to have to play a really, really, really good football game because I don't see them bring a lot of pressure. Um, Auburn did that. And, you know, if you bring pressure against this team and you don't get there and Ole Miss kind of has struggled at least sometimes getting there when they bring blitzes, Rogers will kill you. He, he will, he will find a guy and he will kill you. So being able to rush three against this offensive line is kind of like the most important part of what's going to happen in this game.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned it, the The interesting aspect of that is Ole Miss has been good about keeping things underneath them, as you pointed out, or in front of them, as you've pointed out a couple of times this year, it's, this is going to sound dumb coming out of my mouth, but like, how do they – like, do they want in some ways to goad Rodgers into throwing the ball deeper down the field because he does not have the greatest arm? Like, how do you no. – how would you induce that defensively?
2: Um, Yeah, I don't think you really want to entice him to take the deep shots, you know, kind of like playing like a robber and like, you know, kind of baiting him into it because uh, he's not incapable of hitting, the, like, down the ball down the seams and everything. Um, I think the most important thing for Ole Miss is just to tackle well and kind of they really haven't been doing that. You know, A&M was probably their best tackling game um, of the year. And uh, against Liberty and against Vanderbilt, they did not tackle well at all. So really just keeping the playmakers in front of them. Uh, When he dumps the ball to the running back, you know, you just have to rally. And you have to do it for four quarters, which is why it's so hard and why State, you know, they they get after so many teams because they just don't really switch up what they do. They, they, They just do it the whole game. And they're they're patient, and Leach knows what he's doing, and he's gotten Rodgers, you know, so on schedule with what they do. Um, Tackling, keeping everything in front of you, and just making a play 1v1 if he does end up going deep, because I think there will be some throughout the game that will kind of be really key. And uh, when they played last year, I mean, the game was close, but it should not have been close at all. Uh, Braylon Sanders, you know, he missed a – he dropped a fourth down touchdown. They struggle in the red zone kind of like they had this year. Uh, They have to change that or uh, this is a better Mississippi State team. They'll they'll make you pay for it.
1: What's the one overarching thing that's been different about when the state offense is good or bad? You can answer this from a defensive perspective or just what they do. But, like, when it looks bad, it's really, really bad. And then when it looks good, I think you made the reference last week or two weeks ago, probably last week as we were talking about the Auburn game, it's kind of like it comes at you like an avalanche and it's hard to like stop it. Once that thing really gets going, it's really like a freight train in that sense. Like what is the one overarching thing that defenses have done to make this offense stagnant when it has looked bad? Is there one common thread in there?
2: Yeah. It's just getting to Rogers with three. I mean, if you watch the Alabama game, uh, which I watched a little bit of it, I mean, Will Anderson, unsurprisingly, <laughs> you know, just, just dominated that game was able to get pressure on Rogers with three because Rogers, he's not very mobile. You know, he can, he can make plays with his feet, but he's not like, you know, he's not Bryce young corral or some of these guys were like, that's a real weapon. So if you can get pressure to him, um, like consistently throughout the game, it just changes, you know, his clock in his head. Um, and so, so many defensive coordinators, you know, Louisiana Tech and Auburn, you know, it kind of came like an avalanche. You know, they're just scoring, 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 scoring. It's because they get they get lazy, they get frustrated, and they want to bring pressure when they don't have to. Uh, if you watch Arkansas and LSU, like they just kind of stay in the same thing the whole time and just kind of playmakers make plays. If, if DJ starts getting frustrated and has to bring blitzes because they can't get there with three, that's when State really takes advantage. And Rodgers, like, just, like I've said, just – Game by game by game has gotten so much better at figuring out what he needs to
1: do. And the other aspect of it is what as you mentioned a minute ago, when you do bring pressure, you got to get home. And Ole Miss has done that well at times this year and not done it well at others. And I think state will probably nail them pretty good if they have a bad game in that regard. So it'll be fascinating because I mean, you do need to blitz against them some, right? It seems like being smart and efficient with it and picking your spots. And then the second half of that is that hey, you got to actually get to them. Cause there's a difference between bringing pressure and getting home.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to have to do it. But I think it's kind of picking and choosing when. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do it if you don't need to do it. That That's kind of the biggest thing is if you're if you're being successful and you maybe you're giving up yards, but you're not giving up points. Um, you just don't have to you don't have to go for it. You don't have to reach for it if it's not necessary. I think that's like kind of one of the bigger keys to playing this this uh, air raid stuff. It, it's, it's hard to do it. Cause you know, you you feel like you're losing because they're gaining so much ground, but if they're not scoring, it doesn't matter.
1: It's an interesting way to look at it. Um, That's really about all I had egg bowl wise. We'll get into that a little more later in the week. Probably have a state guy on let's go to some big picture stuff because we do have news and we probably should have taken gotten to the uh, Dan Bowen stuff for an hour in, but whatever it is, what it is. The coaching carousel is, one of the more interesting ones look it's always interesting every year and we don't remember it because we move on to the next story and the next story and like the news cycle these days is so bizarre to me that it's, it's kind of hard to comprehend but this is a particularly strange one and it's weird from an old Miss and Elaine Kiffin perspective so Florida fires Dan Mullen and we'll get to the Mullen aspect of it in a second but you know the big Worry, I mean, look at the message board on Ravels right now. It's probably, you know, 15 threads about is Lane leaving? And I'm sure there's some people on there who've already, you know, hired his replacement. But when you look at it, the big worry has been when Lane has success, will he leave and where will he go? And it seems like on paper, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I'm not saying he's a fit at any one of these jobs. But when you're just generally having a beer at the bar and you're talking about, to- to your buddy about like, you know, what jobs Lane Kiffin actually leave for. It seems like every single one minus like Alabama and Texas has like weirdly come open. USC is open Miami. Yeah. I don't know if Miami's going to come open. Did they win and play well last night? I think
2: they did win uh, play. Well, as a stretch. And uh, uh, okay. you know, when you fire the AD, you know, what's coming next. So I, it's going to open up at some point. I would
1: imagine assuming that opens and Diaz doesn't get retained. And then Florida has now come open. But it's at a very interesting time because he's only in year two of this thing. He hasn't like had, he hasn't proven he can have sustained success at a high level program yet. I think th- all signs point toward him being able to do it. I'm not doubting his ability to do it, but I think sometimes we do lose sight of, Hey, he's in year two. And yeah, if they lose him, there's all of a sudden it's nine and three. That's a good year. But, like, that's not $10 million lead one of these crown jewel programs. Like, that's normally not enough. I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves in kind of talking ourselves into what actually fits and how valuable a certain coach is. It's not a Lane Kiffin thing. But all these jobs are kind of fits on paper for him to some degree, as I kind of go going back to you. How do you view this in terms of what he might do and how you view the Florida opening and how that affects the coaching carousel as a whole and Kiffin?
2: Yeah, this whole coaching carousel thing, it, it's kind of funny from a, of a, a fan view. It's like it's fun. It's like, oh, this is exciting. Like Who's going to go where? Um, having been in it, it's really not that fun. It's just really stressful um, and kind of frustrating. You know, These are people's lives. Um, and I think this whole the reason all of this crap is happening now, I think this year more than ever, is these ADs and these universities are seeing what's coming up in the future, which is all of these conferences changing up, Texas and Oklahoma coming into the SEC, going from four to 12 team in, in the playoffs. And they want to put their program, you know, start fresh and put it in the best position to be consistently in the 12 team playoff. Because when this thing comes, if you're one of these big programs and you're not in the 12 team playoff, your season is a failure. Bar none. No one cares about the Sugar Bowl. No one cares about any of these games that are already devalued. They will be completely irrelevant because one, they'll be a part of the Big Twelve team. I was playoff, about to say they so. might be
1: playoff. They'll probably will be playoff. Yeah,
2: playoff. It'll, it'll be like a playoff version.
1: The um, Outback Bowl won't mean anything.
2: No, it'll mean absolutely nothing. Completely and absolutely nothing. So if you're like Florida, LSU, even you know different schools like TCU and Virginia Tech, I mean. When the team, when it opens up to 12, like those kind of programs will have a shot at being able to get in it. A hundred percent. Ole Miss being one of those as well. I mean, shit, they'd be in it this year (laughs) if it was 12, which is just a hilarious kind of a, we are Ole Miss thing. You know, your best year is two years before the playoff changes. Um, And I think that's why all these guys are getting fired. Uh, I think it's because these schools want to set themselves up for kind of the new age of the 12 team playoff. And, you know, the money is going to be crazy because you want to get your guy. And these schools are so scared of people leaving them. Because not because it's a bad thing, it's because it's all ego. You know, they don't Michigan State doesn't want someone to come grab Mel Tucker, not because, you know, they don't think their program's on a better spot right now. It's because they don't want someone to be saying they're a better program than Michigan State. You know, that that's why Ole Miss fans, I think they're like, Oh my God, if Lane goes to Miami, that's because Lane thinks Miami's a better program. It's not necessarily true. He might just want to go live in Miami. Like, that's truly, like, I think that from his perspective, I don't think he thinks Miami is a a better job than Ole Miss.
1: It would be a lifestyle
2: play. I think he just might – there might be a chance he wants to go live in Miami. And I'm not saying he's leaving. I do not know. I do not know what he's thinking. I do not know what he would think about it. What I do know about him is that his whole thing about the SEC is real. He wants to be in the SEC. He loves the SEC. He knows it's the best conference in college football. Um, this whole thing about, like, you, if UCLA opens up, would he consider it? I would say a 0%. 0% chance he's going to UCLA. I get his family's over there, but that, that ball is so bad and it's only getting worse. There's no chance. Um, I, I think Miami is real. And we've said it on here, like, every single time we've talked about it. You know, that would be the only one that I would be like, yeah, I could see him going there. I don't know if he will, and I don't necessarily think he will. Um, but Florida's open now. That's kind of surprising to me. Um, it, it really is – you know, I'm not a Dan Wolkin guy at all, but Dan Wolkin had a very good point on Dan Mullen. I mean, for the last 10 years, all this guy has done is overachieve or achieve the goals of where he's at. And he had one bad year and gets fired.
1: It's I mean,
2: literally, literally what happened. I mean, literally he has overachieved at Mississippi state. Almost every single year gets to Florida. They win at a very high level for his first three years has one bad year. And he's fired. And I think that's what happened is this whole 12 team playoff. It just makes these schools panic. They're like, we have to be in this. Cause if we're not in the 12. We are irrelevant, completely irrelevant. That's what's what college football will be. And That's why so many of these you know, these programs are firing these coaches left and right. That's why, in my opinion, at least. Um, and I don't – I wouldn't be surprised if Kiffin get, is thought of at Florida, but I, I don't – I don't see them doing that. Uh, I think they just had a guy who was an offensive-minded guy who struggled to recruit, and for all intents and purposes, Lane Kiffin has struggled to recruit at Ole Miss. Um, he didn't at USC and Tennessee, but guess what? not that hard there so that's probably a little bit more about the program than it is about him um so I don't know what Florida's going to do I haven't really been that deep diving into a lot of stuff on Twitter or message boards or whatever you know just to entertain myself but um I think the Miami thing is real I don't know if it's going to happen um but I think it's definitely him or Cristobal and God I don't know why anyone would hire Cristobal but it's possible so we'll see
1: Interesting. So he on a couple of things there. One, I think you're right with the Miami thing. It would be a lifestyle thing. I have no idea if you go, I would actually probably lean. No, just given these. I would too. I would too. The, the, just the timing of it. Like it's interesting. It's kind of a two ways to look at it. He's only in year two here, but also there's probably some sort of step back coming next year. I'm always cautious Particularly in this, well, how we don't, like, we don't know yet how the portal is going to affect year to year in college football expectations versus, like, being able to reload. Like, because if they get a quarterback next year and nail the quarterback transfer, they could be good as hell again. The schedule kind of lines up. They are, might yeah. be 6-0, and oh, and then they play the SEC West for their last six games, In Alabama yeah. and Auburn are at home. So like we just don't know yet. So I'm hesitant to say that. But on paper, he's probably looking around at what he's losing this year and thinking, hmm, we might take a step back next year. Is this the time to parlay it into one of these quote unquote elite jobs or go live in Miami, as you mentioned, because I'm not including Miami as an elite job. Anyone who does has not woken up from a coma since 2001.
0: But no, the right.
1: other aspect of it is he's only in year two. As highly as Ole Miss fans and people around and fans in general think of Lane Kiffin, and rightfully so, what he's done this year is incredible. It's one year he hasn't proven he can recruit and build yet. As you mentioned, recruiting, kind of a sore spot that I say no one wants to talk about. Rebel Grove is all over it, so those guys, <laughs> over the Rebel Grove board doesn't miss a beat. That community is all over it, but generally, it's not part of the general conversation of Lane Kiffin. It's not great. He has a chance to rectify it. Will we know until next year? I'm not sure. It depends on their approach to the portal and all that. We just don't know yet. But it's not a strong spot on his resume so far. And I think you're seeing that to where LSU is whiffed, assumingly on at least assumingly is not a word. I'm assuming they've whiffed on at least two guys. Mel Tucker staying. We think. You know, I don't know what to make of the Lincoln Riley Jimbo Fisher deal. But Lane yeah. Kiffin is still not to the top of LSU's list. And to yeah. your point,
3: he realistically, is this
1: is a there. guess. He's probably not at the top of Florida's so far. So I think there's a gap in how fans perceive Lane Kiffin and how people in power that make these decisions do right now. And I think part of that is because those guys sit back and say, well, I don't have a huge enough sample size yet to know if this actually is going to work out. You really don't even have it with Mel Tucker. It's kind of perfect. It's It's a perfect example of the time we live in. He signs this gigantic contract. He gets absolutely blitzed oh. by one of the programs he's going to be paid to beat and compete with now regularly. And he's yeah. only in year one. So I think that's a perfect <laughs> example of it, but I think there is a gap there. So I'm not sure what Kiffin would do. I think if he was offered the Florida job, he'd probably take it. I think if he was offered yeah. the LSU job. He'd probably take it. And then is yeah. the wild card, but <laughs> on the terms of the elite jobs, I'm not sure he's there yet as much as fans want to push him into that in the eyes of the decision makers.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I think people need to realize that if LSU or Florida like officially offers him the job, he's going to leave. <laughs> he is going to go to LSU or he will go to Florida. That, that I don't even have to, that will happen. Um, you know, more money, it's a better job. It make it just makes sense from every single angle of it. It just makes sense. It, it's the Miami thing that I think people are so stuck on because, you know, and most people that pay attention to the sport realize that Miami is not a better job than Ole Miss today. There are advantages that Miami has. I think it's probably a little bit easier to recruit there. And I think you get to live in a better place. No offense to those in Oxford. You know, Miami is Miami. It is a pretty cool place to live. Oxford is beautiful, but you know, Lane is not a Mississippi guy. It's probably not exactly his thing. Though I do think he actually kind of likes it more than he thought he would. Um I kind of know I'll that. I agree with
1: that, but there's no yeah. fishing for snook at Sardis.
2: Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um and not that he can't just go to <coughs> <coughs> excuse me. Boat whenever he wants because he uses that plane pretty liberally. Um but it, it's a real thing and um I think, you know, if I'm an old Miss fan, just kind of look at where the job is now compared to where it has been. If he does leave, I think you're going to be okay. You know, I I don't think it's going to be, you know, when it's Lane, he's at the job, it's kind of Lane. So you get this extra level of national attention. that I don't think, you know, the program's used to, and that's fun and cool and game day was, you know, very different, but I don't think you're in a terrible place. And I don't think, you know, depending on who you hire as the coach, I mean, unless you just completely whiff on it, you know, and there's some guys that I think could be whiff material, uh, I think you're going to be okay. Um, all of that being said, you know, I don't think he's going to leave. But, you know, I don't think he's very high on LSU's list, but I do know that he's on it. You know, he is not a total zero of an option. but It
1: could get to that point, but it's not there yet.
2: But that's the whole thing with LSU. It's. It's going to be weird for them and Woodward because of all this smoke with Lincoln. Um, you know, it's all out there, whether it's even true or not. But the whole deal is, you know, from a bunch of public perception standpoint, if Lincoln ends up not going to LSU, where do you turn next? <laughs> that, that's why it's so weird, because, you know, I kind of lean towards thinking Jimbo is going to stay and I might actually believe him. Um, that he really is going to stay at AM. and So those are your top two guys, and they both say no. Where the hell do you turn next? Does
1: it have to be Napier? I,
2: I think it does. But now that Florida's open, I mean, I think there's a probably a part in Napier that's like I, I don't mind going there either. <laughs> right. So that's a pretty pretty good gig, pretty nice place. Um, all things considered. So. It's like it's all the timing thing now. It's like, you know, you, oh, LSU's had all this time to figure it out. But it's honestly, Florida, they're in this, kind of the same position LSU's in. You can start vetting people. They probably already started vetting people starting with the after the Georgia loss. Like, OK, like this could go downhill. Let's start now. So they're not in a particularly different spot. Um, I think USC is in trouble. Um, I think that they it just doesn't who knows what who's going to go there. Um, I think the Pac-12 is such shit these days that it's not as appealing. And, you know, James Franklin, I think, is a terrible football coach. (laughs) I think he's a good program guy and a really good recruiter. I think he's a bad football coach. I think the exact same thing about Mario Cristobal. He is a really good program guy, a really good recruiter. You watch them when they play a team. You know, the Ohio State game was so weird. It's it's almost like an outlier compared to what Oregon has done when they play a team like it's actually pretty good. I mean, they got curb stomped against Utah, and he's shown in the past like he has some just wildly questionable game day decisions that you're just like, what is this guy doing? And I, I don't know if either of those guys leave. So those are the two guys that everyone thought in the beginning were going to be you know the top names for these top jobs, and now they're not. But all these top jobs are still open, so it's like. Wh- all these guys are firing guys It might just end up with just kind of an average, super overpaid coach. I know I saw Jeffrey Wright tweeted it and I don't know Jeffrey at all, but I completely agree. I think it could be a case where Florida, Virginia tech, Miami, you know, whoever, all these jobs that are open, they could all be ending up with really expensive coaches who are just not that exciting or maybe not even qualified for the job. And that's just kind of the, you know, that's the pickings that are out there. And there's only so many guys right now that you would hire and be like slam dunk. And you'd still probably have to sell some people on them. So it's just a weird, weird time. And I think there's so many quick triggers being had around the country because of this 12-team thing, like I've said. So who knows what's going to happen
1: that's a great way to just get into it. I know you've been chopping at the bit to kind of get to the playoff aspect of it and how it's changed things. I think that's a perfect way to kind of introduce it in the conversation because it's fascinating to look at this from like a market standpoint. Cause I mean, Neil mentioned on the podcast the other day that I was listening to on my drive home from work that he heard and he didn't report anything. I know, I know people sometimes take what Neil puts on the board and out of context. And I know that's his favorite thing in the world, but he just said he was talking to someone and that he had heard LSU had gotten clearance to go as high as 15 million dollars annually for their next football coach. You know, whether that turns out to happen and be the case, isn't really doesn't really matter whether it's a success or a failure of a coaching hire. That's an absurd amount of money to pay a football coach it's in the SEC given kind of the what these schools make and what the results are and how hard it is to achieve it and the odds that you find a guy that's actually any good and you're i think you're dead on where you you were talking about Jeffrey's point and kind of what you added context to it as well all these jobs are opening because of the drive to get to the playoff but there's not enough supply of good coaches to fill them with not even close so this is going to continue to happen yeah. and it was already happening remember when chip kelly was the greatest thing On the coaching market, when Florida ended up hiring Mullen, they missed on Chip Kelly. I think there was one more in there. And Mullen-
2: Scott Frost was the other guy.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. A prime example of that, Yeah, I don't want to say Mullen fell into their lap, but he wasn't their first option. And they just fired him for going 34 and 15 and winning the East last year.
2: It's so stupid.
1: The market makes no sense and no one's like doing anything about it because in the end of the day, when you have to spend all the money and the athletic department's not worried about turning a profit, it doesn't matter. They're just going to keep spending this money stupidly because they need to anyway.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the LSU, you know, I obviously follow LSU the most, you know, just because it's where I'm from and everything. I think it's also the job that has caused the most public discussion I guess because it's something like this I mean just imagine LSU ends up hiring either Napier or Aranda two pretty qualified coaches I don't think Aranda's done enough yet but he's been there and he could accept it but could you just imagine Scott Woodward getting up to the podium after paying Dave Aranda like you know four years 60 million dollars like 15 million dollars a year and having to lie to the fan base's faces saying that this is the guy we wanted the whole time And we're going to pay him $15 million a year because we just were approved to do it. And we just feel like throwing around that kind of money because, you know, I hired the guy that I wanted to hire. It wouldn't be true. And it won't be true for anyone not named Jimbo and Lincoln Riley. So it's such a hilarious dynamic with them right now. And I think Florida could be in the exact same case. I mean, you're fire mulling. And what if they don't end up with Napier? What if they end up – I mean, I don't even know, like, who – like Jamie Chadwell or something. And then Scott Strickland has to go to the press conference and be like, you know, this is the guy we wanted the entire time. And we're going to pay him $10 million a year because that's kind of the market value. And no one's going to believe a word I say right now. (laughs) Like what what are the fan bases going to think? You know, they're not, the people aren't stupid anymore. There's so much out there on Twitter. Like no one's going to see the coach and not know who it is and not know whether he was the guy they really wanted or not. So it's just crazy. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have fired Ogeron. They absolutely should have for more than just losing football games. But the Mullen thing, you know, one bad year out of like 10 years of being a head coach and you get fired. And they clearly don't know who they want next. I mean, at least that I'm aware of. It's just it's insane.
1: Exactly. Woodward, excuse me, Strickland may have a plan, but he's not the most popular guy on that campus I wouldn't imagine right now in terms of his track record. So there's another dynamic element to that as well, but it's fascinating because isn't there an argument to be made that one of these ADs eventually, maybe they don't, but because you're right, that you, it's a, you have to sell the hire. I mean, Ole Miss did it in a good way where they needed, their program was bordering on record levels of fan apathy and season tickets. And we don't need to go into all that, but but Keith Carter said, I need to make a splash. And that was part of his hiring. That was in the headline of the column I wrote that day that Kiffin showed up in a suit and people are drinking beer on the Monday of finals week in the pavilion. He needed to make a splash. Well, making a splash is different at $5 million a year than it is at fifteen. And yeah. there's an argument to be made here that you just need to stop trying to appease fans. And I get it. Fans have more power in these sports than in this sport than it does pro sports. It's yeah, not a very many fans. Boosters
2: and fans. Exactly.
1: Yeah. They have a little more pull. I mean, hell, look at Ole Miss's previous coaching search and hire before that. Uh, I think that kind of speaks for itself, but there's an argument. One of these guys you would think eventually is going to be like, I'm not, I'm not caring about pleasing my fan base in the short term, because when I go hire Jay Norvell or I go hire Dave Aranda or I go hire Billy Napier and I don't have to pay them 10 and a half million dollars off the bat. They may not like it in the short term, but there's just as good a chance, maybe better that they build a winner. And then I look like a genius in the end. So like, if you can withstand the short-term fake outrage that doesn't really matter, there's an argument to be made that that's the best strategy to go. And I'm curious if an AD finally figures that out to where it's like, I don't have to go pay Mario Cristobal $10 million a year. I don't have to go pay Lincoln Riley $10 million a year. Why not try Billy Napier, who's built kind of a monster at Louisiana Lafayette for what they have pay him six or whatever it is, probably seven, somewhere in that neighborhood, I would guess. And you probably have just as good a chance of success. But I also just don't think there's any incentive to save money, which is another aspect of it. So I'm not sure it will happen.
2: No, definitely not. But I think also from like an AD's perspective, you know, the reason Scott Woodward does the the home run hires and, uh, I mean, he's done it, you know, Chris Peterson to Washington and Kim Mulkey leaving Baylor to go to LSU it, it's kind of saving his own ass. And look, I, I actually know Scott and, you know, we're semi-family friends. And I've met him before and been around him. You know, he's very good at his job and he's competent, but he's definitely, you know, it's Louisiana. He's, he's a pretty well-known guy and has a, he has an ego. Um, it kind of saves your own ass a little bit because if LSU hires Jimbo Fisher or Lincoln Riley and it doesn't work, Scott can just be like, well, this was the hottest name on the coaching cycle and I got him and I paid for him like, this really isn't on me. This is on the coach. Same thing at A&M when he hires him from Florida State. You know, Jimbo in Florida State, it was like an untenable situation. It wasn't as big of a coup as people think. I mean, Florida State is the most overrated job in college football, and he wasn't doing it there. Getting him to A&M, it's like, you know, if Jimbo can't win here, it's not really on me. I got you the guy. You know, Chris from Washington. If he doesn't win here, not exactly on me. I got you the guy who was proven to do it. So it's, it's good on him for getting the guy that has the most best track record. But it's also like, if it doesn't work out, what else would you have wanted me to do? But now if they say no, and you end up with a Randa or Napier and you're overpaying them by like $3 million a year and it doesn't work out, then it's like, okay, Scott, like, what the hell happened here? You know, we just remembered you allowing Ogeron to hire four shitty coordinators. And now you did this, you know, you're on a little bit of a, not a hot seat, but kind of like a, mm, do we trust you as much as we thought we did? Who knows? Because maybe they do get them and it doesn't matter. But it is a dynamic that has to be seen kind of at every single college, really.
1: Yeah, you're dead on with that too because like another aspect of it is it's similar to the NFL draft or really NBA. You can put it in any pro sport. Baseball is a little different where sometimes GMs just, even if they like another player more, will draft the quarterback or draft the consensus guy that everyone thinks is the better player. Because if they don't, work out it's like well you know everyone had this guy as the consensus number one overall pick it didn't work out like that's not really on me because everyone thought the exact same thing i did to whereas, if you take a risk and it doesn't work out on a less lesser guy and how he's viewed perception wise and it doesn't work out then you look like an idiot and so it's so like perception based and that combined, the perception combined with the no incentive to actually kind of get someone at 60 cents on the dollar or something like that is probably why this is just going to get stupider and stupider, which I'm all for because it's hilarious to follow from like a distance sure. if you're not in it. Like it's yeah. it's awesome content, but it's not going to get any smarter. But I just wonder if one day some AD is just like, hey, we're going to go get the Billy Napier of the world. We're going to pay him six million bucks and just see if it works out because I'm going to spend a ton of money and it not work out, you know, with the Lincoln Riley or something. And then we're in the same boat. But to your point, I don't think it ends up happening that way because of perception, saving your own ass, the ego involved. It's a fascinating dynamic. And also these guys don't have time to build. Look at Dabo Sweeney. Dabo Sweeney would not become Dabo Sweeney in 2021 because he wouldn't no. be afforded the time to do it. There's no time to build anything. And look, there's more context to the Mullen thing of him just being an abrasive asshole. He and, he and Scott Strickland, not the chummiest of friends, even when they were at their best, that's well-documented. There's more that goes into that. But when you look at it big picture, the guy goes 34 and 15. That's the best record of anyone not named Spurrier in like half a century at Florida. He has one bad year. He won the East last year. And now you're, him, you're canning him. I'm assuming his buyout is a decent amount and you're about to go pay a ungodly amount of money for some guy that you're not sure is going to work out either who's probably a less proven commodity than Dan Mullen than when you hired him Dan Mullen had about as good of a track record as anyone so it's a bizarre deal I don't know how that works out but let's get to the Mullen aspect of it as well Borky made this point on Twitter earlier today I don't know like he wasn't saying that this is definitive he was asking this question which I found is an interesting one is there any point where these jobs become slightly less desirable because of the absurd expectations? Do you think any of these coaches look at, like, holy shit, Dan Mullen just went 34 and 15, won the East a year ago, and is yes. out of a job the next year? Do you think they look yes. at it like that? Because it seems like it's yes, turning that way. Yes.
2: yes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, people, I, yes, money is very important, but what's more important is job security. You know, people like, especially if you're an assistant coach, like moving from job to job, I mean, I know when Summerall left Old Miss to go to Kentucky, it was for two reasons. One, Old Miss did not have an athletic director at the time. <laughs> you know, Keith Carter was not made official. You don't know what's going to happen if someone new comes in. They might just, you know, fire Coach Luke immediately and then move on. And now you're out of a job. So he goes to Kentucky with Stoops, who has eternal job security. And that's that. If you're Florida now, what what message are you sending that guys like McIlwain go to the SEC championship game? Mullen goes to the SEC championship game. I forgot
1: McIlwain did. That's a great point.
2: No, with a uh, terrible quarterback. You went – because the other guy, uh, Greer, got suspended for PEDs or something, and he ended up still going in 15 with uh, the other kid, Harris, Treon Harris or whatever. No, he still got there. And, um, no, he couldn't sustain it, so he got fired. But now if you're a guy like Napier – or Franklin or Ball, whoever the hell people think are a good coach now, are you really going to leave a spot where you're loved and make a lot of money and have some security to go to Florida where they fired coaches for being probably more successful than you've been at your place? (laughs) It just, that's a real thing. You know, I don't care how much money you throw out there unless it's like $5 a year or more. You know, if you're only offering $1 more at another place with less job security, it's not going to be as appealing. Truly. And that's, that is how some of these guys think about it. And maybe some just want the money and that's fair, but they've definitely devalued, you know, the brand of Florida because they haven't been overly successful there, but he has won a lot of games. But if the expectation is playoff every single year and you don't get it, you're going to get fired. And that is not that appealing to guys that can make a lot of money at different places and be more secure.
1: And this is an interesting part of it as well. Actually, I'll get to this first. Do you think Kiffin might think about it that way? Of course, there are jobs he covets and would want to leave for, but do you think that factors into his decision making? Look, I went 10 and 2 here, and if I do it two, three more times, they might build me a statue versus elsewhere. Do you think that factors into his decision making?
2: Uh, it's hard to say. You know, uh, I, I No one knows really him. Know, no one knows him really well. And even in the building, like being around him, like I don't really know his personality that well. You know, he's an introverted guy. He doesn't really talk a whole lot, and when he does, it's usually something that like people kind of pay attention to because that's how little he does. Um, I would think he is pretty damn confident in his abilities that it wouldn't factor into it as much as it might for someone like Napier who seems to really want full control and full autonomy of whatever program he overtakes, which is why he's been such a stickler about all these jobs. Um, So I don't know if it would to that extent, but I do think that there is deep down a part of him that's like, you know, I've seen this Florida job up and close at Alabama and now at Ole Miss. And, you know, I know a whole lot about it. Like, do I really want to go there? You know, how much do I like Scott Strickland and know him? Like, do I really want to work with him? Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. And this is all also not including the fact that, this Auburn deal, <laughs> there's not a guarantee that Harson's there at the end of the year either, uh, for a multitude of reasons. So that hasn't even been brought up yet.
1: All right. he might get, you know, called back to the C organization. Um, have you seen that Scientology documentary?
2: <laughs> yes, I have. That's I have. the core of that. the day. And I, I call. I, it took me a second, but I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Okay, yes. good because. Apparently that's the, you know, the the Reddit rumor level of things that he's like Jeez. loosely aside. Anyway, whatever. That You're right. There's a multitude of reasons there. And also there's probably a chance he might bolt for another gig and go back out towards the West Coast. Do you think he might be interested in Washington per se? Yeah. I don't well, think he's necessarily be a fitting there. USC, but some Pac-12 gig maybe.
2: Yeah, two things. One, if he goes back to Washington, I honestly wouldn't blame him. Washington's a really good job. It really is. Um, you can recruit pretty well there. Uh, Pac 12 is a lot easier to win and uh, it's it's a decent place to live. I know there's, you know, it's a weird place to live right now, kind of the world we're in, but Seattle's nice. I've been there. It's a beautiful place, Um, the campus and everything. And he's clearly an outsider there. Um, The second part of it is if it comes to December 4th and Brian Harson doesn't get the vaccine and ends up having to get fired for that, no program should ever hire him. You, You can't. If you're that big of an idiot, and you're willing to give up that much money for your own beliefs, And you shouldn't – beliefs are important. Everyone can have them. But you're the head of a football program, the CEO, and you're not going to get it, and you're going to get fired because of it. No one's going to hire you. Nobody, especially not Washington, um, with what's going on up there. It's just – it would be insane to me if he doesn't get it and ends up getting fired from Auburn. I mean, what a terrible look. Whether you're right and like just
1: to make sure, like I I get it. None of this uh, gets taken uh, out of context. What you're saying is not even an anti-anti-vax thing. No, no, no. Personal choice. It's the decision making of it all, and you know they're not thrilled with him in general. The recruiting is not going great there. If you kind of look at it from even just a ten thousand foot view, that's a way they could use to get out of paying his buyout, right? That would be a potentially a four cause termination. So, like they could use it against him. So just. I mean, I hate doing this because guess what? Chocker vaccine content is not my favorite content out there on the internet these days. Same. But like no, when I it don't... comes down to it, weighing the pros and cons, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. So kind of putting a bow on all this and tying it back to Kiffin, or excuse me, tying it back to Mullen. It was interesting because the people around that program, like the guys that cover it locally, seemed adamant that, hey, he's probably getting in 2022. I started believing it when he fired Knox and uh, no, not Knox, what Hevesy, excuse me. And yeah, and Grantham. Like, that would make you think the way they did it, the way they presented it. That's the closest thing to a literal sacrificial land that you get in college sports. It's kind of the way it rolls. You get next year. But I saw on Thursday, a couple of the Florida writers said, look, if he loses to this Missouri team, then I'm not actually sure about this. I'm not sure he survives the year. And that was really all I needed to see where, when I saw that result in overtime, I was like, Okay, this is a done deal. He this job's going to open up. And maybe it would have happened anyway. I don't know. I would there's no way to actually know. But that that was the cement on things, the final nail in the coffin, whatever cliche you want to use. But it is fascinating because he is 34 and 15. He won almost 70% of his games. Like if you're Florida and what Kirby has rolling at that professional business up there in Athens. What are your expectations? I get, as again, there's more to it, but what are you seeking? What are you paying for? He won the East last year. He beat Georgia. Like, I know they suck this year and things seem to have gone south, but what are you seeking out? Are they trying to win it every single year? Like, at some point, this just becomes completely delusional. And better to package this in a question, I read Neil's 10 Thoughts right before we started recording. Neil, under his little sec rankings part put said call me crazy i don't think florida is a top 10 job do you agree disagree and why
2: my, my job rankings is always I, I love the ranking of the jobs thing i think it's i think it's fun i like you know go to town different opinions um do i think it's a top 10 job yes i, I do i mean it's still florida Um, I think there are some dynamics where people don't realize how good of a school Florida actually is. Like there's a real academic thing there that they definitely care about and probably don't put in the resources to football that some people might think that they do. But at the end of the day, it's still Florida. And especially right now where Miami sucks and Florida State sucks, if you get the right guy in there and you actually recruit that state like it's been done before, you're a top ten program every single day of the week. Um, I mean, if you're in the East, you know, I think Georgia is a better job and that's it, you know? So in your own division in the hardest conference in the country, you're the second best job and not that far off from Georgia. So yeah, it's definitely a top 10 job. Um, but I think they've made weird hires. I think they've gone about it pretty poorly over the past few years. And I don't think Mullen was a bad hire, um, which is why I think this whole thing is so weird that he gets fired like this after having real success. But that's what happens. You know, Alabama's the king until they're not, and Georgia's looking that way, and that's your quote-unquote biggest rival, and you have to get through that rival to achieve the goals that Florida thinks they should achieve. And if you look at the two programs right now, they don't even look close. So that's just like, you know, if you're getting that job and you're not set up for success to beat the rival – and you don't achieve your other goals, it's it's a bad combination. And that's real in, in this kind of day and age with these boosters. You know, they care so damn much about pride um, that if you can't do that and you can't get to the playoff and stuff like that, it, it's a bad,
1: bad, bad
2: combination.
1: And then that probably brings us to the playoff aspect of this. The 14 playoff has not been good for the sport. No. I think terrible. that's a pretty safe take at this point. So I'll go into town on this. I so it's fun. It's funny to follow from afar. I think where people argue every week, why is this team number four, number five? I mean, shit, last week you had the whoever the representative was that week um, talking, it may be the same guy talking about why they ranked Michigan State or excuse me, Michigan ahead of Michigan State. He probably feels justified after watching what they did against Ohio State, but that's neither here nor there, where he said, you know, head to head isn't everything look at the other metrics where Michigan state beat Michigan. That's such a bad, even if there might be truth to it, that's such a bad thing from an optic standpoint. Cause it's like, okay, well what the hell are we doing here? Why are we playing these games? If metrics are just about everything, it's almost like you're just playing the games to gather metrics. And so it's not a real playoff. As I've mentioned a thousand times, it's an invitational. It makes no sense. It's a bunch of dudes in a room watching on television who look I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but they also have some sort of probably unconscious personal bias given their daytime occupations for the most part. And it makes no sense. And to your point, which I know you've been waiting to get to, only having, I can't believe a bunch of dudes got in a room and saying, hmm, we have five power five conferences. Let's have a four-team playoff to make sure at least one of us is totally (laughs) screwed every single year and probably two of them, (laughs) How? Anyone sit in a room that's put in charge of such important things and think, yep, winner, let's do it. I people are anti and the anti I don't understand the anti-12 team or, or expansion argument where it's like you really want more of this. Yes, give more teams opportunity. It's not about this the results of the playoff games. There's NFL playoff games that suck to watch. There's NFL playoff teams that they win their division and they go seven and nine. And like in college football, that'd be like, what are we doing here? It's like, what do you mean? What are we doing here? We're creating opportunity to whereas the NFL has it figured out we're going to get to Thanksgiving and three fourths of the league is still in the playoff hunt in some form or another. It's about opportunity and keep people interested and keep people, keeping people invested. And that's why when someone's like, I don't understand why they'd expand. Do you see what the four seed does every year? It's like, I don't take you seriously. I I can't take you seriously because that's such a short-sighted opinion. You're an idiot. Exactly. And so, That's been a toxic thing for the sport, and I also think it's driven the craziness of this coaching carousel thing. And I guess the twelve teamer is going to fix it. But how do you view how everyone's getting their ducks in the row in preparation for it? Because one, it will be a better team for the better thing for the sport. It's keeping people, like I mentioned, invested. Opportunity for programs like Ole Miss, who really don't have much of a realistic shot to finish as a top four team, but absolutely have a chance to finish as a top twelve team. And how do you think that's affecting what we're seeing now? Like, how do you think that's playing into this?
2: I think it's the main reason that we're going to see these coaching changes and the money and everything. I think it's all culminating to set up your program to be as good as they can be coming into this 12-team playoff, along with the conference realignment stuff that's going to happen. I mean, the SEC is about to be an absolute gauntlet with Oklahoma and Texas coming. And, yeah, Texas sucks. But – I it will, you know, they will elevate themselves when they get to the SEC. I don't think they're going to be what they thought they were going to be, but they're going to be better. Um, and now with the 12-team playoff, you know, it gives so much more opportunities for so many different kinds of programs who during this four-teamer had no chance of even competing for, an SEC, for a championship. It was just not even there. Didn't exist, didn't matter. Um, so now you're like, man, if we're, just, if we're mediocre and not able to get to a 12-teamer, We have to make a change. And I think that's what Florida saw. They were like, okay, you know, Tennessee's not going to suck for that much longer. Uh, Hype was doing a really good job there. Uh, Kentucky's beaten us two times in a row or two out of three and Georgia. uh, I mean, we're not even like a similar football team to them. You know, we've got to change and whether that's warranted or not, like it doesn't even matter because that's just the way that these, you know, these jobs are going to be operating because this is what football this is the whole point of why you're playing the sport is to win a championship and your odds just are about to go up here in two or three years um are you going to just sit there and be stagnant or are you going to make a change you know even if it doesn't work out because there's no guarantee that it will um, make a change to kind of reinvigorate money in the fan base and get you know yourself situated to compete in this new era and it's just going to be fascinating because I think you're going to see so much more of this bullshit throughout the sport. But I do think it'll be so much better of a product because games throughout the entire season will matter so much more. I mean, even the Ole Miss a game, in reality, didn't even mean anything. Truly did not mean anything. And there was only three weeks left in the season. And there's the 12th or the 11th team. And knowing it doesn't matter. And that's, it's going, that's going to change dramatically.
1: That's the other part of the anti-expansion guy where it's like, we have the greatest regular season in any sport and the more teams you add, it devalues it. It's like, no, it doesn't. I'd it, 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 never understood that argument either because when you have more playoff teams, you're going to have more games that matter in November. Like I, I don't understand why in the world, anyone would want to watch this clown show of a sport where if you go 12 and one, depending on what conference you're in from a playoff standpoint, and the crown prize of the sport you're kind of toast. And certainly if you have two losses. So I never understood that it's devaluing the regular season. No, what it's devaluing is the fact that you lose one game and your season's over. So it's actually putting, injecting more value, in my opinion, in the regular season, because Definitely. A&M Ole Miss will matter. And you'll have games on the last week of the season, a ton more that matter so like I I don't understand that aspect of it I think I don't think I think the anti-expansion crowd is pretty much dwindling to non-existence because people have realized it's mostly nonsensical but I do think the expansion is going to create a healthier college football product than just ecosystem in general because Dan Mullen might not be the perfect example but you'll see less of the Dan Mullins and the I'm trying to think of another example because Ed's not a good one but the less of the rash firings because if you have a five and six year all, or six and six year, all of a sudden, it's like, OK, well, if you're just trying to finish in the top 12 of the sport, like it can it's more easily being able to be turned around versus like, hey, we got to be one of the best four programs in the country. And when you boil this down to its simplest form, that's why we're doing this. That's why all this money is being thrown around. There's 25 programs that think they should be a top four program. In reality, there's only five programs that are actually top four programs, if that makes yeah. any sense, even though the math doesn't add up.
2: No, 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 yeah, but I think the flip side of what you're saying is, you know, I think this is going to grow because now you're going to have programs like, you know, like a Mississippi State, Ole Miss, that kind of level, Arkansas, uh, Florida State, or whatever. If you go like two years or three years with either not making the 12 or not competing to make the 12, you're, you're getting fired. Like, it's that leash of that level of program that kind of like 15 to 25 – or there's years that you probably should um, make, you know, the playoff and you don't, you're not just going to be able to win eight games for, you know, for perpetuity or, you know, forever and stay in that job. Because the, the expectations for that level of program are about to change. And that's a good thing. Yes,
0: but for a,
2: For a silly season coaching carousel thing, for a job security for some of these guys like Mark Stoops and whoever – Gary Patterson prime example it's going to change dramatically for that level of program and it'll even seep into like the the bigger group of fives like you know even like ULL and Boise State Cincinnati SMU Houston these kind of guys who will now have like an actual chance of getting in whereas now they actually don't um, you're going to see it with that level as well
1: yeah and it's 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 interesting on the flip side of it too it's like it's not devaluing anything because the NFL has this every year. The Washington football team was not winning the Super Bowl last year. Pick another playoff team. the Indianapolis Colts with Phil Rivers. they were not winning a Super Bowl last year. But would it have shocked me if Phil Rivers had gone into Buffalo last year and upset the, the bills and knocked the you know, number two seed out and kind of, you know, made the rest of the playoff structure completely different and weird? No. And so that's part of the point, like the NFL has it down and I get it. It's different. It's college professional sports, but like the point is, is that the Washington football team thought they had a good year and their fans and everything were still invested, which is what you need in college sports more than you need in pro sports. Cause those are just money-making machines. There's invested in it longer. And like the way you view things is completely different. So I think it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be much better for the sport and where the craziness should be in terms of rash firings is exactly what you said. It's the guy that's eight and four get Kirk Ferentz, Who's able to just be nine and three at Iowa every year. And they're completely fine with that. When they stop making 12 team playoffs, they won't be fine with that. That's no. where the rash decision should come from. Not a guy who won the East had one bad year in his can. And don't Correct. confuse me with the Mullen defender in terms of his personality, but that's where it should be. And it's created as a system of nonsense. So I don't know any final thoughts. I feel like we covered that uh, pretty, pretty solidly.
2: I mean, I guess we could just kind of quickly go through. I mean, who do you think everyone hires right now? I mean, I mean, I could go through it. I don't know, but
1: we'll go rapid know, fire, gun to your head, LSU.
2: Uh, I think Lincoln Riley says yes.
1: Oh, I'll hope- go Napier just because I don't know. No. I mean, like, but for
2: fun, for me, I mean, for as a fan, that, that would be great. For fun, I hope he says no to see what happens next, but I, I think he's going to end up saying yes, Florida. I think that they end up with Napier.
1: Interesting. Uh, why is there? Think, what do you make of the Bob Stoops buzz there?
2: I That would make no sense. That would be a bad decision. <laughs> when you're out of it, you're out of it. Uh, I, Napier makes a lot of sense there.
1: That's also the other aspect of this whole thing is there's no, this is, it's not even an inexact science. In a lot of ways, it's a crapshoot. You do your homework and then you just hope for the best because no one was crushing the Joe Moorhead hire on paper at state. It was a great hire. Like he checked all the boxes. It made sense and it just didn't work out. So that's the other aspect okay. of it is none of us actually know how this is going to go. Oh, you.
2: it's a total crap shoot. Yeah.
1: Uh for Florida. I don't even begin to know where to start. I guess I'll agree with you with Napier. Cause that seems to make sense. I don't know. I, I couldn't even, I'm having trouble coming up with the Florida candidate pool. Um, I don't think it's Lane Kiffin. Miami. I
2: don't. Uh, I think. <laughs> I think
1: they go Cristobal, don't you think?
2: I, I would say it ends up being Cristobal. But you're, you're not going to see me with a shocked face if if Kiffin decides to go there.
1: Interesting. I, so I'm just not going to
2: be surprised. Uh, I, I wouldn't I think, be shocked either. But I just don't think they have a long list. And if, if they end up with neither of those guys, then, like, who the hell knows what they're going to do? Um, I, I think Cristobal makes – A ton of sense there. Um, I don't think it gets past those two. I just don't.
1: USC, I guess, would be the last one.
2: Uh, I I think they're going to do what they always do and pull out some bullshit and hire some retread professional coach. I think it'll end up being someone like the Seahawks got their ass kicked today. Maybe Carol I love
1: it. I was hoping you'd go there. No, I
2: mean seriously, I mean, maybe he's tired of that deal and wants to go back to USC. Uh, Ross is asking Arand- for a
1: trade. Also, yeah. that's another aspect of this. Right. If he
2: season. leaves, then I'm like, you know, maybe he actually would go back there. Like, I mean, and that's like a totally serious thing. Uh, if not him, maybe Aranda does it. The one name that never comes up in these searches. I was thinking about this earlier today when Utah beat Oregon. Why does no one hire Kyle Whittingham?
1: That is team he- is always tougher than shit. And you talk about a ridiculously difficult place to recruit elite talent to. It's impossible.
2: Impossible. No one ever brings up his name ever in the history of all of these for the past like five years. that I've like, actually paid attention to it. He's never been a candidate for anywhere. Maybe he's older than I realize. And he loves it there. You know, for all, I don't know how old he is. If I have USC, like why hired that guy? i mean you have he's a no-nonsense guy they're gonna play their ass off it may not be hollywood style but i bet you they'll be a lot fucking better than they have been 62 it's not old
1: and i mean it's not young but not young you get a decade out of that
2: yeah i I guess that's probably why he's not brought up a whole lot also not
1: to be that guy he's yoked for 62 he looks great for 62 and i think that matters to some degree is so he's
2: a good looking guy you know absolutely um they're always yeah.
1: tough as hell, though, and they well, maximize everything about that program.
2: Washington or USC or if Chris Paul leaves Oregon, like, I don't understand why no one wants him. I'll never understand it for forever, why nobody has ever thought that maybe our team could be consistent and hard as shit like these guys. And their offense this year, I don't know if you pay attention, they're fucking good. They're really, really talented. They switch quarterbacks, change the whole thing. So maybe somebody will finally, you know, get smart and go hire him. So, maybe USC will do it. I'll give Whittingham to USC.
1: He Call replaced him. Urban.
2: And he has literally he's been there since 05. Time. Yeah. He's been there for a long ass time. And at some point, you're kind of ready for a change. Maybe this is the year for him. So, I'm calling Whittingham to USC.
1: They have been to one, two, three, four, five, six straight bowls. I'm not counting last year, about to be seven. And he's won since 2014. And this so he had a kind of two acts of his career. He went seven and five, eight and five, nine and four, thirteen and zero. That was the Sugar Bowl 08, 10 and 3, yep. 10 and
2: 3. I was at that game.
1: Really? Yeah. At some down years, but from 2014 on nine wins, 10 wins, nine wins, seven wins, nine wins, eleven wins. What he last changed. year three and two, but that doesn't count. What do we? He's about to get nine again. What are we do it?
2: Put this in the freaking caption when you tweet this. This is the Kyle the Kyle Woodingham Stand
1: podcast. Right, this, we are this PR team. I hope he. Pays. How about
2: this? If Lane leaves Old Miss, call this guy because your team's <laughs> going to be freaking good. He probably will be a terrible fit, and it wouldn't make sense. But I don't get it. I didn't even know he was that good. I knew they were pretty good. That is insane that nobody was ever thought about maybe he might want to leave Utah. So somebody should go get him. He will
1: now win, not counting the COVID year, the Pac-12 South three years in a row and four out of the last six.
2: I mean, holy shit! What else can you expect? (laughs) (laughs) And that's one of those legitimate. He was was
1: six and three in conference, but it's not the point. He won his division. So,
2: yeah, I mean, I'll harp on it for one more minute. I mean, out of that South, so you've got Arizona State, Arizona, USC, UCLA, Colorado. Is that the division? Yes, I believe so. So you're probably like the fourth best job in your own division because I think probably Arizona State, USC, and UCLA are probably considered better, and I would probably buy a decent amount. And you are just kicking everyone's ass (laughs) every single year. That makes no sense to me.
1: Do you know anything about Dave Clausen? He's another one that never gets brought up. I think he looks older. I would guess, if you made me – I'm about to do this in real time. Just by the way they wear their hats and such, I would guess that he's older than Kyle Whittingham, but he's actually eight years younger. He's 54.
2: Okay, so that makes sense. Uh, I would say he'd leave eventually. His his deal, I think.
1: He's literally is, never been in a big-time program other than one year at Tennessee's OC. Everything else is FCS or Bowling Green.
2: Yeah, he has a kind of a gimmicky offense with that real long mesh kind of RPO offense. And I think it really works well for West Virginia and their quarterback doesn't get enough credit for being a really good player. Um, that's an impossible place to win. And he's done, he's had some really good years since. Really yes. Yeah. That is an impossible place to win football games. I mean, you're like the fifth best job in your own state. i true. But at a school that is like all academics. Uh, I mean, they, the basketball team doesn't win and you're in North Carolina where people care about basketball more than anything. Um, it's just a tough place to win. Uh, He would be someone like maybe Virginia Tech. That would make a sense because I think you can still run that kind of semi-gimmick there and have success. Um, Maybe TCU, but I think they're going to hire Sonny Dykes. That's probably irrelevant. Uh, He might be a lifer there. I don't know.
1: That was just another one that always came out, where I don't understand why it come up for more jobs. Before we turn this into the first ever three-hour podcast in the history of uh, (laughs) podcasts, it's Got time to get to the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. It's been a big week in the English premier league. This segment is spreading like wildfire. I, uh, one of my favorite things now is at least four out of seven days in a week. If I'm opening Twitter and looking at my mentions, someone has tagged me in some sort of premier league result. I have people telling me what teams they root for now. We've get we've got dudes checking in asking if we can cover some MLS. This is spreading like wildfire. We single handedly brought the Premier League to ESPN. This is this is probably the finest work of my career. We've had another week. Uh, excuse me, uh, I was about to say Liverpool. Man, Man United has sacked its manager. I will give the floor to you because that is your team. What's happening? I know he sucks. Why? And is this premature? Was this long overdue?
2: No, it's overdue. Um, they, I mean, he has built a pretty good team. They have, they have bought guys that have, that have come here. He has just completely shown that he does not have the tactical knowledge to be a real contender coach. And it's been that way for, like, months now. I mean, even with Ronaldo coming in, they, they have looked super average. In pretty much every game they've played, um, they, they have been outclassed, outcoached, and it finally just came to a halt. Um, the funny thing is, you know, I follow soccer. I know who could be candidates, but I don't really know who they're going to go get. <laughs> I don't, I don't know enough Perfect way guys. to
1: uh, wrap up this pot is once we get to the, uh, across the soil coaching searches. We aren't as well, uh, as well equipped. So,
2: I know that the PSG guy Pochettino, I think he doesn't like it there because he has to deal with so many egos of like the three best players in the world on his team. I think he's had enough there. Um, I don't know who they're going to get, but my favorite team to watch is Ajax. They're the team in Amsterdam. They are one of the best teams in the world this year. And, man, United has always had a bunch of Netherlands ties. Uh, they had a coach, you know, twice who was from there. Uh They're awesome. I would like him. I don't know who they're going to go get, but it's past time for them to have done this. So, good on them.
1: They will be – a doing the search wrong if they at least don't give Kyle Whittingham a phone call. So hopefully he's <laughs> yes. at least partially on their list.
2: Make him Ted Lasso.
1: Yeah. So elsewhere in the premier league, I woke up at eight o'clock yesterday morning and I saw the bees were on, were playing. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to turn this on because they were playing uh, my second favorite team, the Newcastle United The Saudis. Uh, they're actually in 20th place. Now they have uh, <laughs> appears that Norwich city has climbed out of the cellar and um, And Newcastle is on the verge of getting relegated early on in the season. You explained to me that there's a chance where they can completely reshape their roster, where they whatever the British version of free agency is. Yeah. Brentford, not a great year. Every time I look up, they've gone from like eighth, now they're in 14th. Uh, It looks like they tied, which I saw a bunch of Newcastle people. I've started my new thing on when I look on Twitter when I don't have anything else to do. Is reading the fan replies of soccer team accounts because their insults are much better than American insults. They're uh, all over ten
2: place. ten yeah.
1: pot club was another good one. I've seen some other ones in there. A lot of rubbish being used. They keep trending downward. I might have to jump in the mix in those replies eventually. Is anything else stand out this week? We got Chelsea at the top, Man City's in second place, and Liverpool is in third. Isn't that a pro? I was about to say program. Isn't that a team? that is kind of underachieved of late that is kind of coming back on the rise. I remember reading something about this a couple of years ago. What's up with that?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're where they need to be now. I mean, they totally woodshedded Arsenal who has actually played really well as of late. Um, So it's really kind of a three horse race. Um, It's Chelsea city and Liverpool and United's down to eighth. Arsenal is in that mix and West Ham's had a really good year, but it's going to be one of those three teams going to win it. They are, just miles ahead of everyone else from just from scheme tactics and players. They are by far the best. Um, so it's kind of, it'll be kind of a boring, I think run, I, but I think it'll be exciting between those three. And then the, the the fourth champions league spot will be up for, up for grabs for a bunch of different teams. Um, but yeah, those, those guys are, by far the best teams in the league this year.
1: I've noticed this Brighton club is trending downward. I want to say Very they were cool. higher up earlier in the year. Is this uh, is this reality setting in for them? Absolutely. Are they Absolutely. a little club?
2: A little mean regression. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they were up to like third or fourth, and I think they're about – they're like ninth or tenth right now. So that's about – that's even honestly higher than I would expect them to be. Uh, so a little mean regression happens.
1: I know I've asked you about this club before. Aston Villa is a – team that I've certainly before we started this segment had heard of. And I know that's a big time ish club. I think they're in 15th place. What's the lowdown on Aston Villa? Are they actually good? Or did I just make that up? Maybe it's just a memorable name.
2: No, they're, they're pretty historic. They've won this league in the past. Um, They were a really good team back in the old, in the the good old days, uh, the kind of like pre premier league days. And um, they fired their coach and hired Steven Gerrard you know, the, the Liverpool legend that okay, I think yeah. you kind of mentioned before. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they, you know, get out of this. Uh, I They're not going down. Uh, I think they're, they're talented enough uh, to keep up. And they're at 15th. They won this week. Yeah, I, they'll be up. Um, and Gerard, I mean, he did a really good job in Scotland. And uh, I bet he'll do a really good job there.
1: I don't think there's anything else just by the extensive research I've done while we're recording this podcast that is – uh Stuck out of Wolverhampton Wanderers. What a sick name that is. They're in sixth (laughs) place now. What's the deal with this?
2: They're just damn good. They have a small club. Uh, it's kind of a medium sized club, probably on the smaller side. That's the club that I had mentioned. Uh, they are the the, like the Portuguese agent is like locked in with with Wolverhampton. So, like, all their players are like probably like five or six of their starters are all Portuguese. Yeah, it's a weird dynamic that I honestly didn't even know about, you know, before like two or three years ago. Their um, their forward is is a Mexican player uh, who's really good. Um, they they just play wide open. They're they're tough as nails. They uh, if you go look up Adama Traore on Google and see a picture of him, he's like a fullback playing forward, and he runs probably like a four 3 40 He is a freak. Uh, I think he's hurt for them now, but he is. He's as fun as anyone to watch play. He, he is a freak of nature. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're really good. Probably overachieving at this point, but uh, not a total crazy surprise with that where they're at.
1: All right, last thing, we had a guy checking in on Saturday bragging about the Chelsea win, and I said the only take I have from this is when I was looking at the score he tagged me in, like the little graphic, they have American teams absolutely to the woodshed on logos and names. Every single one of these logos is awesome in this English Premier League. I'm even looking – I've never even heard of Crystal Palace. That sounds like a drug. That's a pretty fierce-looking warbird there, an eagle or something. Do they do mascots? What's up with the logo? Why do we have a team in the NFL without a name? We have a team in the MLB that had to just change their name and it went so poorly that the sign on their merch store fell this week. I don't know if you saw that. What are they doing that we don't know? And do they have live mascots? Because that's something I'd like to introduce to the Premier League. If we can get live animals on the sideline, I think that's something we could all stand for.
2: Yeah, I don't think they do. But they they damn well should. Um, they all – because they all – it's like they don't really have – they have nicknames like, you know, like United's the Red Devils and, you know, Liverpool's the Reds and Chelsea's the Blues. They have these like kind of weird nicknames. and Not a lot of them have like actual mascots.
1: Okay. Um, there's another there's a controversy. Greg wanted me to ask you about this. I'm going to pull this up as we speak. Uh, LB's yeah. Greg, his team, Whole City, apparently they got new ownership home. and they wanted to change their name from the Whole City to just the Whole Tigers, which sounded sick to me, but apparently that just the fan base erupted and was like absolutely not. I I heard about this. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I, someone bought them and they kind of have a cool little I think it's like they, they call it the crest, you know, that's like what all these teams have is their logo or whatever is really just like the team crest and sometimes they go through like redesigns i know in the mls like they like redesign their their team logo you know all the time kind of like as a rebranding but these these teams in england they're so you know historic they don't they don't do that they they get one they kind of stick with it um here or there, you'll see something new, but they they do an awesome job. You know, some kind of suck, but then the ones that are really good are like, damn, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think – and they also have an advantage. It seems like all these clubs, for the most part, have been around for like over 100 years. So there's a lot more, it seems like, history. But, you know, British people are too polite, and they probably well, – I say too polite. They are seem like sophisticated. Maybe it's just the accent, whereas like, you know, you see a couple of Americans at a football game with like, seven cores Lights in, I could see them reacting well to like a live tiger being on the field or something like Memphis paraded around that day in 2019 in a cage. Yeah. I don't think the Brits would react well to live mascots, but maybe that's our next venture. This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil. Fantastic podcast. Today, we're winding down the end of the football season. Weldon and I will check in again with you after the Egg Bowl. I appreciate the time, my friend, and we will, uh, we will catch up next week.
2: Yep, have a good one.